Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. It's my pleasure to call to order this city council meeting for the afternoon of February 13th. Welcome once again. Tony, would you please call the roll? Jimenez? Present. Torres? Cohen? Here. Ortiz? Present. Davis? Here. Duan? Candelas? Present. Foley? Here. Batra? Bat Present. Kame? Here. Mahan? Here. Torres? Here. You have a quorum. Great. Thank you very much. Now, if you're able, please stand and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. <coughs> I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Today's invocation will be provided by the El Grito de la Cultura Academy dancers, and Councilmember Jimenez will tell us more. Good afternoon. I'm excited to welcome a few members of El Grito de la Cultura Academy of Mexican Folkloric Dance, which includes over 80 families when they are all present. Our dancers today are from ages 7 to 16 years old, and we thank them so much for being here. I told them they were going to be on television, and this is their moment to shine. We're very excited about that. <laughs> the, yeah. the director, Ms. Elena Robles, is a photojournalist and community activist who has been teaching about our Mexican-American culture in the community and college, community colleges for 53 years. She was a founding member of the Ballet Folklorico de Stanford and continued to teach them for nearly 30 years. She was a founding instructor of the San Jose State's first Ballet Folklorico, director of Los Lupeños de San Jose, for 12 years in its growth years, and a founding board member of the California Statewide Danzantes Unidos Festival. All these organizations still exist, and their protégés are instructors and directors of their own companies throughout the Southwest. 35 years ago, Ms. Elena was the first to bring core studies of Danza Azteca to California's ethnic classes and dance companies, and hosted Capitanes Aztecas from Mexico to teach those who wish to learn. Over the decades, her generosity and contributions to the culture, cultural vibrancy of our city have been fundamental to our diversity today and can be witnessed year-round in festivals, schools, events, classes, parades, civic and family events, as well as events in District 2. Today, we are proud to witness the post-pandemic generation of El Grito de la Cultura, Miss Elena and the kids. Please, the floor is yours. Thank you.
uh, off, we would like to just offer to the um, council and to the community. This group's name is El Grito de la Cultura. Significa, un grito is a scream or yell, but not just anyone. It's a yell of culture. Every culture has a yell that happens when you're in the middle of your life, your family, everything's good, the music, the, the, the food, everything is good, and you can just get happy and you let out a yell. We are so happy that we want to give you Un Grito de la Cultura because remember, we're not just your future, we are your today. And we're making a difference. These kids do community service, they don't perform. They learn about where they're at, what they've raised money for, why it was important and like that, and they're already making a difference in their own schools. So thank you so much for inviting us. We're gonna do our Grito de la Cultura. You guys ready? Say yes, I'm ready. Everybody clear your throats. Okay, <coughs> now go to your happy spot. Take a deep breath and let it go. Okay, are you ready? Get set, go. <gasps> Thank you. Thank you, Maestra. Great to have you here. You guys were fantastic. Yes. Yes. That's right. You guys are great. All right. That's a great way to kick off a city council meeting. Thank you, Councilmember Jimenez. We are on to ceremonial items. Councilmember Torres, if you would join me at the podium, we will both recognize the 31st president of San Jose State University, Cynthia Teniente Matson. All right. Say a few words after me. Uh, or are you good? You're good? Okay. All right. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce a leader in our community who already needs no introduction. That's Cynthia Teniente Matson, president of San Jose State University. Since stepping into the role last year, Cynthia has helped build the bridge from San Jose State University into the city of San Jose, into Silicon Valley's downtown, that's right, I'm talking about our downtown here, and into the grassroots of our entire community. Cynthia breaks barriers. President Teniente Matson is the 31st president and the first Latina to serve as president in the university's 166th year history. President Teniente Matson has already proven to be a strong partner to the city of San Jose. She has helped drive turnout to city hall career fairs, partnered with the city on cross promotion and marketing, championed expanding student housing throughout the downtown to enliven our downtown and create more housing options for our students, has collaborated on 
event programming, marketing, and joint security concerns, is deepening San Jose State's relationships with tech giants across Silicon Valley, and in short, she is building a world-class university here in our world-class city. So without, and it's been, I'll just say on a personal level, it's been a real pleasure to work with her. She's got so much energy and optimism and vision for how to take our university and our city to the next level, and I've really enjoyed the collaborative, optimistic, and energetic spirit she has brought to the job. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to President Cynthia Teniente Matson, who is receiving a commendation, which I'll give her in just a moment here, for her presidential investiture and serving as the 31st president of San Jose State University. And Presidente, your investiture is this week? Next week. Next week. Awesome. Really looking forward to it. Thank Please you. say a few words. Well, thank you very much, Mayor. Thank you very much, Mayor. Thank you very much, Councilmember, for including me and all of my colleagues that are with me today from San Jose State University. I have shared with our community and I've shared with the Mayor that San Jose State and the City of San Jose are the epicenter of the future. And our university is a significant part of that work together and the collective impact that it takes to make our city, our university, and all of our students and alumni rise to new heights. We are absolutely delighted to share this investiture moment with our community here. This is about our university. This is about honoring our past, respecting where we are today, but really looking to our future. And I know you share that same vision, Mayor and City Manager McGuire, and so many of my colleagues on the council that I have had an opportunity to meet, many of whom are San Jose State alumni. So thank you very much for this tremendous uh, honor. And Jake, you. we appreciate it. Go Spartans. Go Spartans. Go Spartans. All All right, Councilmember Foley, if you would join me at the podium, we will recognize and proclaim Calangia Carcinoma Awareness Day. Thank you, Mayor. Good afternoon, I'm Councilmember Pam Foley. Today I'm here to recognize Thursday, February 15th as Kalangia Carcinoma Awareness Day in the city of San Jose. This day is part of an international effort to raise much needed awareness of Kalangia Carcinoma. This type of cancer forms in the bile ducts, which are the slender tubes that carry the digestive fluid bile from your liver to your gallbladder and your small intestine. Each year, nearly 10,000 people are diagnosed with this lethal cancer. 
Due to the lack of symptoms in the early stages, the majority of patients are diagnosed when this disease has already progressed to stage four. The rare nature of this cancer and the devastating prognosis have made it historically difficult to fund and recruit patients for clinical trials necessary to advance treatment options, leaving few options for those diagnosed. This day, which was first celebrated in 2016, and is used to raise, raise awareness and to advocate for this poorly understood and under-researched cancer that is increasing in incidence globally. To accept today's proclamation, I am joined by Don Bonet, who first educated me about the lethal cancer when telling me about her and her best friend Marcy's mother. Dawn herself is now one year post-treatment and two years post-diagnosis. She continues to have extensive blood work and a CT scan every three months to monitor for reoccurrence. Today, she is joined by a fellow patient, Sarah, a caregiver, and her husband, Brandon, who has played a part in, their, in the support group she has had throughout her journey. Mayor Mahan, will you please present this proclamation to Dawn as we invite her to say a few words. Um, as, as council member fully mentioned, cholangiocarcinoma is a rare and deadly cancer of the bile duct. There are, as uh, council member fully mentioned, nearly 10,000 people are diagnosed with this lethal, lethal cancer, including Charlotte Jackson, Marcy's mom, and Sarah Zwingman. Um, a fellow patient with cholangiocarcinoma. Um, unfortunately, Marcy's mother gained her wings as the result of cholangiocarcinoma in 2020, a few short months following her diagnosis. Sarah had a liver transplant in 2022 and is now considered NED. And as uh, Council Member Foley mentioned, I'm about two, two years um, post-surgery and about one year um, post-chemotherapy as well. Um, you'll notice I said that both Sarah and myself are considered NED. Um, and that is due to the fact that um, due to the high rate of recurrence, doctors will not ever declare us cured. They will only inform us that we have no um, evidence of disease on our current scans. Um, while this cancer is um, rare, um, it is increasing and it is um, estimated to become the third deadliest cancer by 2040. And the median age of those diagnosed has decreased from 65 years of age to 44 years of age. Um, February is the International Cholangiocarcinoma Awareness Month. It's a campaign established by the Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation to raise awareness in an effort to increase early diagnosis of and research into cholangiocarcinoma. So I want to say thank you to the city of San Jose and the city of San Jose council members and council member Foley for joining us in this effort to um, raise awareness by proclaiming um, February 15th to be Cholangiocarcinoma Awareness Day. Thank you.
Okay, thank you, Councilmember Foley. We are on to orders of the day. Does anyone on the council have any changes to the printed agenda? I was not alerted to any. Okay, closed session report. Nora? Thank you, Mayor. We do not have a report out of closed session today. Okay, thank you. Um, next is the consent calendar. Are there any items that the council would like to pull from the consent calendar? Okay, I don't see any. Do we have a motion? Move approval. Great, thank you. Tony, do we have public comment on the consent calendar? I have no cards. Okay, we are uh, ready to vote then. Can you vote um, orally? I can't pull up the vote screen. Fine by me. Yeah. Call the roll. Um, you don't need to call roll. You can just all, all As eyes. As a group, yeah. all right. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Okay, we are on to item 6.1, long-term power purchase agreement with Zeta Solar. I believe there's a staff presentation. Good afternoon, Mayor and Council, Lori Mitchell, Director of the Energy Department, and really pleased today to be joined by Paul Emirato. He's our Deputy Director of Power Supply. So this contract is a solar and storage contract uh, that's named Zeta Solar. Um, this is a power purchase agreement to purchase renewable energy, resource adequacy, and energy from this contract. It will be located in Merced County, and it will be constructed by the end of 2027. So this power purchase agreement will be for a term of 20 years with a total cost of just over 225 million. So just a little bit about Long Road. They are a developer that primarily focuses on wind and solar and battery storage projects throughout the United States. They've been operating since 2016, and they have over 1.9 gigawatts of projects under operation. They're not a publicly traded company, and they are a developer that we have another executed power purchase agreement with that council approved last year called SunPond. So a couple of the key terms of this agreement are one, deliverability, which means it's able to be connected to the transmission system, and then the labor components of this agreement. So importantly, this project needs to be connected to the transmission system in order to be delivered to us here in San Jose. And it has received a full allocation from the California ISO who operates the transmission system, but they need to show additional projects on the development of this project. So they, in order to keep that allocation, they need to have an executed power purchase agreement by February 14th, which is tomorrow. So we are recommending approving it today so that we can sign this agreement tomorrow and they can keep that allocation. Another key aspect of this agreement are the labor provisions. So we understand there's some current concerns from IBEW. Um, in response to that, Zeta has offered to include language in the power purchase agreement that requires them no later than six months prior to, 
to construction, which will likely be in late 2025 or 2026, that they or their construction contractor will enter into a project labor agreement or they'll award the contract to a union signatory entity um, which will employ a union workforce governed by the existing labor agreements. So in summary, deferring this item would likely result in Zeta losing its deliverability allocation and require the parties to renegotiate key aspects of this agreement, including the price, um, which may mean that the project does not get into construction. And then importantly, it would also not meet our regulatory requirements that are mandated by the Public Utilities Commission. And so with that, we're happy to take any questions. Great, thank you for the presentation. Let's go to public comment first. Will Smith. Good evening, Mayor and City Council. Thank you for the opportunity today. My name is Will Smith. I'm with IBEW Local 332. We represent electricians here in Santa Clara County. Um, we are prepared to support this moving this project moving forward, <clears throat> and we're appreciative of the staff um, bringing forward the memo that they submitted today. However, in, uh, in order for us to to be on board and support this, we we are looking for an amendment. We want to see strong labor language and we would like to work with the staff to develop strong labor language for this project as well as future projects. We have, uh, I have a few copies of just a um, basic language that we would like to see implemented um, and it touches on things such as prevailing wage, um, apprenticeship hires, um, <clears throat> uh, talks about the construction that falls in the apprenticeable uh, occupations of the building trades. And it talks about multi-craft project labor agreements that shall be deemed to meet the requirements of payment of prevailing wage. For projects that do not implement a multi-craft project labor agreement, developers shall submit monthly reports to the agency showing compliance with payment of prevailing wage, um, compliance with skilled and trained workforce requirements, and to document employment of apprentices. So we urge uh, the council to, to move forward with this project, but to move forward with solid labor standards that's gonna promote a high quality project that's built with local hire as well as um, apprentices. Thank you very much. I could submit copies of, of this. To sure, I'll take it. Back to council. Okay, thank you. Back to council. Councilor Batra. Thank you very much for bringing this contract forward. I need a couple of clarification. We say about $11 million, up to $11 million a year. Does that mean that we are obligated to buy $11 million or we have the option to buy up to $11 million? So we are obligated to buy the energy that the project generates. If it doesn't generate energy, then we're not obligated <laughs> to purchase it for $11 million. But every megawatt hour that it generates, we're obligated to buy it up to that $11 million. So what's our minimum obligation, you say? 
There, there's no minimum, so if it never generates any energy, we're not obligated to pay anything. Okay, so if it works best for us, we get it. If not, we don't need to. Okay. Okay. Uh, so that's that's a pretty decent contract. Uh, I can see. Uh, I have a totally unrelated question to the generation of power. Uh, I'm going to ask it. We may not be able to discuss that over here. During this last week of storms, when 800,000 people lost the power, thing which occurred to me is, is there any project that related with this one, connected with this one, which is working on improving the distribution of power as a part of this one or any affiliated project? Um, because we're going to be dependent on our power distribution for a long time with the vendors we are connected with, despite of whatever the power, clean energy, whatever power we buy from wherever we buy. But our distribution is still going to be dependent on the people we still are getting it from them for the next many, many years. And I just want to know if there is a project associated anywhere which is working on improving the reliability of the distribution. I can take that one if you'd like. Uh, Kip Harkness, Deputy City Manager. Um, as a reminder to everybody, we're talking here, as you know, about power generation. And then that power generation will be connected into the grid through and the transmission system on the grid. So in terms of this particular project, the key thing is getting the power generation and then connection into the transmission system, which is governed in California by Kaizo, the California Independent System Operator. In the city of San Jose, the distribution infrastructure for essentially all of the electricity is owned, operated, and maintained by Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E. So we have uh, an ongoing series of meetings where we are working with PG&E uh, to try to understand how we can support each other, but the primary responsibility for the operations maintenance uh, and uh, re-establishment re of the distribution system in the case of storm events is with the PG&E, a private entity. So our, our role is primarily supporting in that regard, that we all are have agreed that we have a mutual interest in increasing the resilience and reliability of that. Thank you, Kip. Since PG&E operates under permit from us, is it possible for you to have a long-term joint project, single project, whatever, where you periodically report how they're trying to improve this uh, distribution over the future? Probably the appropriate place to report back on that would be through the T&E Committee, Transportation Environment Committee, where we report out on our city infrastructure work, including our work around electrical reliability. So we can include that. Those kinds of conversations and updates on those in the T&E report would be the appropriate place, I would think. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because I, I knew that this wasn't the right place, but I just wanted to get this out so that some right place we get that discussion going because that's equally important, if not more important, than purely clean energy purchases, okay? So if you will help me include that in that other place, I would really appreciate because there's a definite public interest in that area, okay? So thank you very much for the power thing, and i uh, like to work with you and keep on getting the other thing uh, highlighted. Okay, thank you, Mayor. Okay, thank you, Councilmember. Councilmember Ortiz? 
Thank you, uh, Mayor Mahan, and I want to thank our ESD staff for putting forth um, this potential contract. Um, wanted to hear some thoughts. I believe Stephen may have just shared with you guys uh, the potential language to ensure labor standards. I believe it's four points. Um, one is making sure that the project will comply with prevailing wage provisions that are applicable to public works projects. Um, the other one, the second is the construction will fall within an apprentice, apprenticeable occupation and the building and construction uh, trade um, shall be performed by skilled and trade, uh, skilled and trained workforce. Um, the third would be um, work under a multi-craft project PLA shall be deemed to meet requirements of pay, paying of prevailing wage, use of apprenticeships, which is really important to me to make sure we're building that pipeline of workforce. Um, as well as using skilled and trained workforce. And then the fourth, the fourth one is for those that do not have um, a PLA um, to ensure uh, um, uh, workforce standards by requiring a report um, to make sure they're meeting these standards. And you have the language in front of you. I just wanted to get staffs, um, any feedback from you reading this language, um, any, any initial thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Council Member. Um, unfortunately, we received this language late this morning, and so mm -hmm. um, what we worked on in the supplemental memo yesterday, um, you know, has already been approved by Long Road, the developer. So we would recommend proceeding with that. Aspects of this language are included in the PPA, um, certainly complying with prevailing wage, um, but unfortunately, we don't have time to go back to Long Road right now and see if this would be acceptable to them in order to mm -hmm. sign the power purchase agreement. So that's the unfortunate situation we are in this morning. So just, I just want to make sure I, I, I understand. So this language would, we, in order to implement it, we would have to come to an agreement um, with the other party, essentially. Yes, and um, if I could, again, Kip Harkness, we, um, in IBW's initial letter, our understanding was that the priority issues were a PLA and the prevailing wage, and we've incorporated both of those into the modifications in the power purchase agreement, and the developer has agreed. Some of the other issues that you've raised, we would be happy to explore and come back in terms of any future PPAs that we have and see explore the feasibility of including those and bring that to council for a conversation and a direction from council. But at this point, given the need to uh, hit the deadline so that we meet the CPC, CPUC requirements and are not in a deficit on our regulatory requirements, we don't have the time to check that in real time and do that change. So our recommendation or our request from the staff side would be to move forward with the modified PPA language and if there's any modification to that that you direct to clarify it, we're fine with that, but that the other ones require a little more research and time for us but could potentially be incorporated into future PPAs. Okay, I appreciate that and, and thank you um, for you know providing me um, your expertise and, and opinion. Um, I'm gonna move forward with accepting the um, report uh, but also including the suggested four points um, that have been provided by our labor partners. Thank Great, you. thank you. And just to clarify the motion, it is to uh, approve the power purchase agreement. Is that right? Yes, Move correct. the staff rec. Correct, and okay. the four points provided to us. Okay. And move them forward for future consideration? Um, move them forward, well, future consideration, but also this, the consideration of this project.
Okay, I think I just heard that didn't work. Is that, did, did I miss something? Well, the existing power purchase agreement does not have those points in it, and we would have to negotiate that with the with the developer before we could guarantee that we could do that. So unless we had a delegated authority or something like that, we don't we we there. It's a two parties piece, and we don't know whether they would sign. Can we direct them to at least approach with these with these suggestions? And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Does that work for staff? Okay. Yes, that works for us. Okay, okay. so we would make an attempt. Okay, okay. thank you. Great, we have the, mo just wanted to clarify the motion, that's helpful. Uh, Vice Mayor. Thank you. Oh, you're not on. There you go. Uh, thank you for that. You know, I, I understand the predicament that staff is in, and, and thank you for the supplemental memo, but I will say that unless it's in writing, it may, may not happen, whatever. I mean, I, I totally understand the situation that we are in. I also understand that they're in a situation where they need to have this by tomorrow. So the agreement, however you have to do it, add an addendum, add whatever language it is, but I think that this is the moment at which it would be important for them to also sign on to, uh, to some of these provisions. So I'm a, little bit, I'm a little bit sort of reluctant to just say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't fit in, maybe next time or whatever. I think that they are also motivated by having this done by today. And if they're not able to do it, then they should just say, no, we can't do it. Um, but if you don't have it in writing, then, you know, it, I, I just see it as a floating thing out there for future, whenever it comes around again. This is a 20-year agreement. It is worth a lot of money, and um, I think that we should have high labor standards. Yeah, thank you, council member. Uh, just to clarify, I think the developer is very willing to work with labor. Um, you know, we worked with them late yesterday on the Great. language. Great, then they yeah. should sign an addendum saying we agree to this. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, it's up that. to them. They need it. They want it by February 14th. And, you know, it just happens that, yes, in fact, we want to be able to work with them. We want to be able to do things with them. They're able to uh, be in a good position. So, um, you know, you have the agreement. You add an addendum. If they agree to it and they have told you, yes, in fact, they agree to it, then they should just sign it. So just to clarify, um, we received this language at about 11.30 this morning, so they haven't had a chance to review this language. And so that's the, that's the challenge that we have is just the timing of this request um, and getting it uh, agreed to bef before the item is heard here today. I see. Okay. Yeah. So I think the motion on the floor is to go to them and ask them to agree to this and write it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Councilor Torres. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for the presentation. I, I'm going to be supporting the motion. However, I do have a question. Uh, I know that I had uh, just left the, you know, the council office that I used to work for right before the 2021 PLA agreement happened in, in our city. Uh, does, does solar projects like this, are those covered under those, those PLA agreements or is it, um, or what did it, ex I was, some of us weren't here, so that's why I'm asking the question, so. Yeah, let me turn to staff. 
Yeah, my understanding, uh, and I'm happy to be corrected <coughs> if somebody from Public Works is here to correct me, is that that PLA requirement re is, is applicable to city constructions and public works. This is not considered a public work. This is a power purchase agreement. And while it, they are constructing this facility and we are getting the sole benefit of it, it does not qualify as our public work and we are not constructing it and therefore it is not within the realm of the existing policy. Not to say it couldn't be added to future policy, but in, within the existing policy it does not qualify. Okay, no, uh, thank you so much uh, on that, Kip, and I'm not sure if Matt, is Matt here? Was, was, that, was that correct? Okay, <laughs> great. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm glad, and I know we're all getting this right before the meeting, um, but you know, if, if, if we are serious about moving to clean energy or solar energy, I think um, we, we need to revisit this, the, the policy because I know that Council Member Ortiz has been saying we don't want to rob Peter to give it to Paul. Thank you. I was going to say Mary, but okay. Um, but um, vice versa, right? So I think we, we definitely need to revisit this because, like I said, uh, everybody has to be at the table. And if we are serious about, about cutting our emissions and, and creating new technology and having new technology, then, then we need to definitely revisit the, the policy. If we're going to have big projects like this coming down the pipeline. So, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Council Member. I don't see any other hands. Let's vote. Oh, oh, oh. I had. Oh, Councilor Foley, were you? I didn't see your hand on my you request know, how list. Many, how many weeks have we had this kind of technology and I'm still not doing it right? <laughs> I have a couple questions about the um, item that was handed us today uh, during the present in public comment. Um, specifically, the way I, I read this is that it's, it doesn't, um, I'm not interpreting it, but maybe you are, Lori or, or Kip or Nora, that this, the items one through four apply to this project only. Item number four in spe specifically says for projects that do not implement a multi-craft project labor agreement. So that, I, I'm wondering if that affects other pro projects and has the unintended consequence of affecting other projects that we're not discussing right now. Any thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm reading it the way you are. I, I think that's the challenge with this language is we just, you know, we just received it, so it, it obviously needs a review by the city attorney's office and, and the counterparties at legal counsel as well. And our interpretation in regards to the scope for this particular project in memo is we would have direction as it relates to this project. I don't think we would view ourselves as having the authority to take direction on all other projects because it hasn't been agendized. Would be my, my understanding as deputy city manager to be confirmed by the attorney. Thank, thank you then. Uh, Council Member Ortiz, will you accept a friendly amendment modifying these four items specific to this project only? Because we're not here discussing other items and there's a lot of unintended consequences by saying this affects all projects that all projects will require PLAs. While that may be a future intent mm -hmm. to have this language so late for us as council, we haven't had an opportunity to have briefing on this memo 
to understand the implications of it. So I would hope we could limit it to that. And then if you want to come to rules with something else, that's your option, of course. But I'm really concerned about it being included here and having an unintended consequences effect affecting all projects going forward without having the opportunity to actually think about it, investigate it, do research and understand what the implications are all of this from a council member's point of view. No, thank you so much, uh, Council Member Foley. I think we did get staff's opinion that we don't essentially have the authority to do a, a blanket uh, item for all projects, right? So um, that being said, uh, sounds like we don't have a choice but to only have it for this uh, item. So I'm okay with that. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay, great. We'll go to Councilor Davis. Thank you. Uh, while we don't have the ability to do it carte blanche right now, would it be possible uh, to add a friendly amendment to direct staff to come back with an assessment of adding this to uh, clean energy projects so that we can they can come back to us with all of the information that, that you were talking about, Councilmember Foley? Could we add that amendment? That is a wonderful suggestion, Councilmember Council Davis. Let's do that. Let's add that. Thank you. Great. And would that come back to council or to a committee at this point? Well, since we're already having this discussion yeah, council. at council, we yeah. might as well just have it come straight to council unless council member Cohen, who chairs T&E, wants it to have a first pass there. You want to go to the committee first? No, I mean, my, I think we, we keep hearing this conversation each time we have one of these, and so I think it's time for council to just address the issue. And, yeah. Okay, so come back to full council. Okay. Thank you. Great. Anything else? Don't see any other hands. <coughs> Let's vote. Motion passes unanimously. Great. Thank you. Thank you all. We are on to item 8.1, approval of an exemption to the city multifamily housing revenue bond policy. And... This opens a public hearing. This is a public hearing to consider the issuance of tax-exempt bonds by the California Municipal Finance Authority to finance the construction of a 300-unit multifamily rental housing development to be located at 950 to 970 West Julian Street in San Jose for the View at Julian by GEMCOR Development Partners, LLC. The public hearing regarding the financing is required by federal tax law. The public hearing is now open. We will now hear from any person who wishes to speak about the proposed financing. Does anyone wish to speak about the financing? I have no speaker cards and no hands. Okay, and I was going to ask if you had any written comments on the proposed tax-exempt bonds or the project. I, I have no... Um, written comments posted since the agenda was posted. Okay. Tonight. I'm not seeing anyone rush forward to comment. The public hearing is now closed. Great. Do we have any other comments? Or, and that constitutes our public comment on the item. I assume, Tony, we did not have any hands on Zoom either. Yes, oh, we don't, we're not no using hands. Zoom. Never mind. Th Sorry. This item was actually, a, we should announce it, this one was noticed to use Zoom and that language is on the agenda. I have no hands. 
Okay, great. Um, okay. So then, coming back to council, do we have any comments or a motion? Okay, motion by Foley, second by Jimenez. Let's vote. Motion passes unanimously. Great, thank you. Okay, we are on to item 3.1, report of the city manager. Thank you, Mayor, I have no report today. Okay, thank you. Item 3.3, approval of the 2023-2024 mid-year budget review report. And Jim's coming down to give the staff presentation. Good afternoon, uh, Mayor, members of the City Council. I'm Jim Shannon, your uh, budget director, here to talk about the mid-year budget re review. Um, the annual adopted budget is a financial plan predicated on the best information available at the time it is prepared. As with any budget, however, changing conditions create the need to modify the original plan. Through its budget policies, the City Council has designated mid-year as the appropriate time to perform a comprehensive assessment of the current year's budget and the mid-year budget review report as a vehicle for consideration of any necessary budget revisions. To prepare the report, the city manager's budget office, working with all the city departments, uh, analyzed the status of the city's operating capital budgets contained in over 140 funds. Based on that analysis and the recent receipt of several new grants or reimbursements, we have budget adjustments recommended in the report for your consideration today. So. Um, I would say this is a good news report. It's relatively boring, which is really good news for us as part of the major budget process. Um, operating capital funds are generally performing as expected with a few exceptions here and there. Um, while the economy has cooled, that was generally an anticipated. Um, most indicators are still though relatively positive um, through the first half of the fiscal year and very modest growth anticipated um, in the future. Um, budget adjustments are recommended in various operating capital funds that we will talk, talk through here. Um, and as we kind of get into this, as my staff settles around me, um, we are relatively well positioned as we enter into the upcoming budget process. So that is also good news there. Just a quick couple of economic conditions. Um, the, uh, the employment is modestly higher. So employment is up by about 11,000 jobs year over year at the end of December. That's 0.9%. Um, so that's good news, again, re reflective of, of the slowness. Um, the unemployment rate is up, though, however, though. So it was 2.1% last year. It's about 4% 4, 4 this year. Um, real estate activity is continued to be a weak spot for us, so the, maybe it's getting a little bit less, less weak, I would say. Um, our single-family home prices are up year over year, um, which is good because they were trending downward um, uh, earlier in the, the, the fiscal year, but they are up as of the end of December. The rate of property transferred sales had plummeted in, in recent, and uh, I would say over the past year or so. You can tell from that, from that graph looking um, at December of 2021, they've really sort of trended, trended down. But that downward trend has lessened, and so it looks like maybe we're seeing some bottoming out in terms of real estate transactions, which would be good news for us. Looking specifically at the general fund, um, our revenue growth is, is modestly higher. Uh, we're anticipated to exceed budget levels by about $30 million. Expenditure savings tracking to see around $15 million. Um, as part of the actions here, uh, we are 
are going to establish, recommending it to establish a 2324 ending fund balance reserve of 13 and a half million. That reserve needs to get to $35 million by the end of the fiscal year to be able to make our budgetary projection. So we, we project as part of our forecast um, that we have $35 million available on an ongoing basis in fund balance at the end of the year that then continues forward into the beginning of the year. So by setting aside this money now, we're part of the way of where we want to be by the end of the, the year. That'll be used, as I said, as a funding source in the um, five-year forecast and then in the proposed budget. We have a few adjustments here. Now, the mid-year budget process is really not a venue to do new things. So there's going to be uh, a few uh, new things here and there, some special and capital funds. But we really try to limit it in the general fund because we want to save that for the proposed budget process. Um, we do have the one action, as we call urgent fiscal or programmatic need, that we want to bring forward in advance of the proposed process. Um, and that is $100,000 um, to replenish funds originally intended to support the rapid response network. At the Council's meeting back on January 23rd, um, you approved an allocation of $150,000, matching an equal amount of the funding provided by the County of Santa Clara to Amigos de Guadalupe Center uh, for Justice and Empowerment for temporary emergency sheltering and support of new arrival migrant families seeking asylum that entered the U.S. after the end of Title 42. Of that $150,000, uh, $100,000 consisted of funds previously set aside to support the rapid response network um, that is overseen by Amigos to protect, um, is, is a network of nonprofits led by Amigos de Guadalupe to protect immigrant families from deportation threats and to provide accompaniment support during and after arrest or de de detention. But because the contract was not executed, those funds were available for immediate re re redeployment. So we're recommending now to restore that, that funding and uh, the administration looks forward to working with Amigos in partnership with the county to develop a contract that aligns with the intent of the Rapid Response Network while responding to urgent and emerging needs for best support of our vulnerable immigrants. So that is the one item we have for $100,000 in the emergent fiscal category. The bulk of the other adjustments are in the required technical um, rebalancing actions category in general fund. These are adjustments to align with new budgetary in, in information to correct errors or to adjust um, uh, uh, council direction that was previously given. We have a number of um, grants and reimbursements of $3.3 million that we're recommending the, the new grants coming in and their associated expenditures, and then a number of net zero cleanup actions that really just move money from one appropriation to the other to accomplish the same objective. And I want to talk through now um, a few of the items on the required technical. So we have on the revenue side, uh, property tax is a little bit better. Um, and so about $13.5 million of additional property tax is expected to be received this year based on the most recent information from the county. About $3.5 million of interest earnings in the general fund based on the cash that we have in our general fund bank account, plus the higher interest rates, we have a little bit more money coming in on the interest side um, for, um, uh, for revenue that we want to recognize. The fee activity in the PRNS program is doing a little bit better also, so we want to recognize some of the, the funding there. And then we have uh, several transfers uh, in, in and out for a net um, increase of $280,000. For the expenditure side of the house, a few of the ones I wanted to highlight here. So uh, the largest one is the janitorial contract services of $2.7 million. About $1.4 million of that was related to a um, uh, to work that was conducted in 22-23, but because of invoicing issues and uh, uh, working with the contractor, they weren't paid until this fiscal year, so we need to make sure we have enough money to pay that. Uh, it was already paid this fiscal year, so we need the budgetary room to, 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 to make those payments. 
and then another 1.3 million or so for the new contract that was amended and updated at, uh, in October to pay for labor primarily as well as some supplies. It is a pretty big adjustment, so we are working with Public Works to look and see if there's ways we can do some cost controls through the end of the, of the fiscal year um, without impacting services. Uh, then we have some electricity, so $900,000 for um, street lights and traffic signals. E electricity is certainly costing more, and we're seeing that on the city side as well. Animal care and services, about $600,000 related to um, uh, some veterinarian, some contracted veterinarian, veterinarian services, animal uh, food, food supplies based on the population of the occupancy there at the animal care center, as well as some temporary uh, veterinary position staffing work. Um, to allow for some additional in-house medical services for the trap, neuter, and release program, and to make a few more spay and neuter surgeries available to the, to the public. Um, and then the last expenditure item there is the recommended continuation of the um, MED-30 program. Those three, three captains recommend to extend those to the end of, of June. Um, as we had looked at the continued sort of high volume of fire medical transports that we had uh, written about and discussed in the information memorandum released um, in December, that work hasn't substantially changed here, and so we're re recommending to continue these um, through the end of June. And then as you see, the, the balance of all the there's a lot of other stuff that I'm not talking about here. That's, that's in the, uh, my lovely uh, mid-year budget review report. Um, but the balance of those general fund transactions leaves $13.5 million that we're putting in the ending fund balance reserve. A quick hit on a few uh, special funds. Airport um, is, is kind of similar to the rest of the economy there, so um, a little bit down from where we were the last fiscal year. Um, and uh, takeoffs and landings are about 5% five, five down from where we were. So um, definitely higher than where we were during the, the, the pandemic, but has certainly leveled off and declined uh, a little bit. We are recommending the establishment of the San Jose Opioid Response Fund. We are expected to receive uh, seven, at least $7 million over an 18-year period. That number will probably go up as more companies sort of sign on to the settlement. We need to spend those monies on opioid prevention and intervention, harm reduction, and related services. Um, they'll be in its own separate fund. We've got some funding recommended in 2024. We'll do a larger, more substantial uh, analysis and a set of recommendations as part of our budget process. Um, we have an opioid prevention grant program, um, some community awareness and edu education, and um, some oversight funding for this fiscal year. I might have gone a little heavy on the arrows here, but this is a couple of capital funds we wanted to highlight. So the CNC, our construction and conveyance tax, which is related to real estate property transfers, is, is downward. So we do want to take some budget adjustments there from 40 to 35 million. We have been planning for this, uh, but we wanted to take those budget actions as part of the mid-year budget re review. Building and structure and construction excise tax funds, those are based on commercial valuation of building, building permits when new buildings are being built or they're being modified. Commercial and industrial are down but residential is up. And so overall, we're net downward a little bit, um, uh, and those do have an influence on our different taxes there that support the traffic capital program. So building structure is trending downward, not making a budget reduction yet, but it is trending downward, and construction excise looks like it's about even with where we thought it would be in the budget process. I want to take a few minutes to talk about the animal care and services dog and cat license fee. It's a little bit unusual, but as when council approved the proposed budget for 23-24 back in June, there was some direction to look at the uh, dog and cat license fee to see if we could apply an in, in, in income waiver to that fee program and to look and to be guided as how that might look by doing a survey of some other fee programs that the city already administers that has an income waiver for. We had a more extensive presentation on this topic as part of our January 23rd study session, but that ended up getting deferred. Since the fees and charges portion is not 
uh, didn't get sort of re rescheduled. I wanted to just take the mid-year re report, touch a little bit on those on those dog and cat license license fee for future uh, consideration. So there's approximately 60,000 valid licenses um, for a, a cat license fee for one year. It's 25 to 35, depending on if they are spayed or neutered. Uh, dog license uh, ranges from 25 to 65 uh, per year. Overall cost recovery of that fee is not 100% cost recovery. It's about a 79% cost recovery. Traditionally, that has been uh, one of our lower cost recovery fee, fee programs. When we tried to figure out who might um, be qualified for an income waiver and what impact that might have, um, we did some analysis, and I mean, we, I mean, the Public Works Department and the IT uh, department. Looks like potentially uh, roughly 10,000 applicants may be eligible for an income waiver. It's a very rough estimate. The actual figure may, might be lower. Um, but given that potential volume of applicants and the relatively modest fee of sort of 25 to 65, we were looking for a methodology that would be easy to administer for both, you know, the customers and for the city and sort of settled on an approach if council wanted to move forward of using something like what they do for the scholarship program in PRNS, where essentially if you're already enrolled in a, in a uh, federal state program related to in, in income, um, such as those that are listed here, you would be qualified for this uh, waiver, um, provided that you are an actual resident of the city of San Jose. So providing this documentation along with the rabies cert certificate, um, you would be eligible for that waiver of, of the, the fee. And so then we got to figure out, well, what does that really mean for us on a budgetary basis? Um, again, these are sort of rough without a lot of great data. It's going to be a little bit rough, but um, potential annual revenue loss, something like $150,000. We probably need some level of temporary staffing to help with the additional processing, especially while we're assessing what the actual workload might, might, might be and look for some potential automation prod, uh, improvements to make the collection easier in the future. Uh, we know it will take some ramp up time to adjust our systems and processes to appropriately communicate um, the change to the residents. And so if council wants to consider this, we recommend uh, that to be part of the discussion for the March budget message approval so we can really think about how we would we resolve this as part of the proposed budget process. Um, and it would allow some ramp up time to, for us to be um, implemented by the beginning of the fiscal year. And so with that, I am uh, wrapping up, just kind of putting here the next steps in the budget process. And so we're just kicking into high gear now. So we'll be releasing our five-year forecast in just a couple of weeks. And then we, uh, we get on to the March budget message conversation, the production release of our proposed budgets, our study sessions, and then final approval in June. So with that, um, here's the folks who mostly joined me by, after midway through the presentation. And uh, the rest of the staff uh, from the departments are available for questions after public comment. Great. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate the mid-year budget review. Thank you to you and the team for all the good work you do. We're going to go over to public comment first. Matt Tuttle and Tamara Chavez, please come on down. Good afternoon, my name is Matt Tuttle, president of San Jose Firefighters Local 230. <clears throat> Today we ask for your continued support of funding our paramedic supervisor position, <clears throat> also known as Med 30. Your support keeps a position staffed that is an invaluable resource for our citizens, but also as direct support to our already overworked paramedics who have endured years of being overworked and being understaffed. We are still the lowest staffed big city department in the nation and are still operating at similar levels from decades ago. 
We urge you to vote you for continued support staffing Med 30 and appreciate your support and fight for <clears throat> helping San Jose firefighters and the San Jose Fire Department. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Good afternoon, I'm Tamara Chavez, Regional Director for PATH. As you know, PATH has a significant footprint in San Jose. We offer permanent supportive housing, interim housing, and an array of supportive services, including outreach throughout downtown. As the new fiscal year approaches, we appreciate the opportunity to publicly share our priorities. We understand that the economic picture for the city is not quite as rosy as it had been since the pandemic. Despite the media narrative, we are making progress on homelessness. The challenge remains that we see more people entering than exiting the system. We need to remain focused on what we know that works. First and foremost, we ask that the city remain committed to the development of much needed affordable housing in every neighborhood. The cost of inaction far outweighs the cost per unit, especially if the city continues to consider innovative housing options. Secondly, the city is in dire need of additional interim housing options. On average, only 10% of the people we serve can access shelter on any given day. If we truly want to clear our walkways and rivers, actual solutions must be offered rather than just a threat of enforcement. The city has already been a leader in this area, opening successful sites such as Evans Lane, but more is needed. Additionally, prevention is key to stemming the steady flow of people entering into the system. Recent studies show progress being made by programs that provide a one-time cash benefit to individuals. This could be especially effective in at-risk populations such as older adults 55 and older. <clears throat> All that being said, we greatly appreciate your partnership on these matters. Now is not the time to take our foot off the gas. PATH stands ready to continue our good work together and make further progress throughout, through humane and life-saving interventions to end homelessness. Thank you. Back to the council. Okay, thank you. Let's go to Councilmember Dewan. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, um, Jim, and your staff for putting together this mid-year budget. Um, I just got a few questions for you. First of all, I, I believe that we, we strive to uphold the staffing level for the fire department just as much as the police department. And I appreciate that projection of uh, the $600,000 for the three captains to continue the Med 30 program. This is essential we, we, as we move forward in the future, we, we make sure that program, especially Med 30, to continue because Med 30 do a whole lot more than what we see, right? They, they respond to first on scene, they, they call out for resources, uh, they take care of our firefighters who have needle sticks, they coordinate with the counties. Uh, the list go on and on and on. And I just wanna make sure that we continue as a city to make sure that the fire department staffing, it, it's been, we are what you call the, the biggest little city in the nation. In a metropolitan city, the size of San Jose should have anywhere between 60 to 70 stations, but we, are, we only have 33 stations. And our staffing is still the same since 1980. And somewhere, the, 
the amount of volume of calls have gone all the way up to 110,000. And the 11,000 of those are from our unhoused residents. And the amount of calls that we have is almost at a breaking point for our firefighters. Not only mentally, physically, and emotionally going through that many amount of calls without having, looking at the future to, to build more stations, having more firefighters, and putting stations that was brown out or not in service back in service. And I just want to make sure that we continue to support that. I have a question for you regarding the San Jose Opiate Response Fund. I understand that part of it goes to the prevention grant program, some awareness and settlement. Now, does that go to nonprofit organization or who does it go to? Does part of that funding go to the fire department to buy Narcans? Can you give me a little more detail on that, please? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you for the question, Councilmember. Um, so of that amount that we, that we have there, um, we do have um, uh, $350,000 that will be administered by PRNS as part of their best, best program for an opioid prevention grant program. Um, that will, uh, so that's the amount for the grant. Um, we have $75,000 um, uh, to help with that grant oversight of, of that amount, $50,000 for capacity building for um, community learning um, about how that would work with the best, to do some evaluation as part of the, the, best, the best program. So we have about uh, $475,000 sort of related to the opioid prevention grant, grant program itself. Um, and then we do have about uh, 120,000 uh, for the purchase of Narcan and training for city staff and community members for, for some of that use. $60,000 for a similar program within uh, the police department specifically, and then $29,000 for the fire department um, for public education and outreach uh, materials related to the mitigation of opioid misuse, drug disposal, and Good Samaritan laws and treatment. So um, a little bit of uh, more detail than was provided on that slide, but uh, certainly the focus now I think is on um, some community and edu education pieces, some harm prevention with the Narcan and a grant program, and I think we'll be rolling out as part of the proposed budget process some more su substantial work. Thank you. And then regarding the animal care services, uh, you said there's approximately 60,000 valid licenses in, in the city of San Jose. Now, the fees that you put out here, is that a reduced discount fees for our citizen, or is it only a regular fees that I'm looking at? Those are the regular fees. So those, those 20, what, the 25 to 65 range, those are the existing fees for uh, animal license for cat or dog. And then the 10,000 applicants that possibly could, could be eligible for the income waivers, then is there a particular guidelines, um, I believe, that um, ISC is right here, it's on page 13. Um, so these are the documentation, or at least some of the documentation that they need to prove prior to get the, the fee waived? Correct, yeah, so I think that the intent in, in talking with staff was uh, 
uh, not making it you know more difficult for the person to apply make it easy for staff to administer they wouldn't have to verify the income of the individual because that's already been verified by the program that they belong to and so that was the intent to provide proof of documentation be enrolled in those in those programs and then you would be eligible for the waiver well thank you for the the report and um, I move for approval of the uh, mid-year budget report Right. Thank you, Councilmember. Second by Batra. Let's go over to Councilmember Ortiz. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I want to extend my gratitude to, of course, Jim Shannon and the dedicated team at the Budget Office for the comprehensive uh, report that's been presented. Uh, I understand that due to the postponement of the fees and charges study session, you did incorporate um, some of the information that was going to be presented into this memo, so I appreciate that. I would also like to express my appreciation to the public works and housing staff uh, for further reviewing our community development block grant request for the African American Community Center. Really excited about the dollars secured um, for that. Um, and in June, um, our, our budget BA consisting of myself, a colleagues, Councilmember Davis, Torres, Batra, and Dewan. Uh, presented uh, a memorandum in June funding for the repairs of the crucial community center in our in our city. Uh, I'm excited and grateful that the CDBG funding will allow for the completion of the full scope of repairs to the roof and the replacement of the windows. Um, in June, I also brought forward a separate memo alongside Councilmember Torres, Duan, and Batra to bring forward an ordinance exception exemption for uh, license fees to aid the animal care services dog and cat. Uh, license fee for those meeting certain um, income eligibility uh, criteria. We have received numerous inquiries from families who are turned, um, who are worried about being unable to afford the licensing fees for their pets. Owning multiple pets can be quite expensive as they require several vaccines to be up to date, which can cost up to $100 each. The most vital vaccine, rabies, is required to license pets and can last from one to three years. Um, as noted in the report, a renewing a three-year license fee can cost families between $55 to $65, depending on whether their pet is spayed or neutered. Um, and if you add the cost of the multiple vaccines that pets need and the licensing fees required by the city times the number of pets the family actually has, this bill can, of course, add up. Um, the need for help with pet care is definitely there. In the last year alone, my office, in collaboration with the Humane Society, provided free vaccination and spay-neuter services to 458 pets in District 5 for families unable to afford this uh, essential care. Many of those who contact my office share their concerns about not being able to afford uh, a license. Uh, to help alleviate financial pressure for families considering pet adoption or to continue to provide care for their pets, a poten potential waiver of licensing fees for future vaccina vaccination can serve as both a benef benefit and a incentive, especially since the animal shelter is already struggling to find permanent homes for the 900 plus animals currently in their, in their care. With that being said, I do have some questions um, to put this decision into perspective. Uh, Jim, I understand that you have an estimated impact this may have on revenue, but you expect it to be much lower than the number uh, projected in the presentation. To provide more context um, to this conversation, can staff uh, return during the budget process with more information on the number of owners who have paid for licensing versus those who have not paid for their licensing? 
Thank you, question. I, I think, uh, just to clarify, I, it, it could be lower. I don't know for sure that it would be lower, but it's, it was a really, I just want to emphasize the iffiness of that revenue projection. Um, but, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think, yeah, I think um, those additional elements, we could probably come back with some. I'm looking to Matt Lesh. I think some of those extra questions we can likely try to get better at as part of a MBA or something, probably. But I'd like Matt to comment on that. Matt Lush, Director of Public Works. Um, one of the challenges is it's not known exactly how many pets there are in San Jose to, so, to know which ones are the gap. There's going to be a real challenge there for the accuracy of what you're asking for. We can certainly make estimates and we'll come back with estimates. Okay, would, would it be possible to, you know, as this moves forward for, for there to be ongoing reports to the council just for us to get updates? Uh, reports on which kinds of reports so I can make sure I in regards to the progress on you know the number of uh, individuals or families who have paid for licensing versus those who have not paid for the licensing we could certainly report which ones haven't renewed but we mm -hmm. won't know necessarily exactly how many don't have their licenses it's kind of an unknowable well those um, who didn't pay like if they waived it or something like that essentially if we waived it if this went through uh, if we waived it yeah we could list how many were, were waived yes okay um, and I, you just answered my other question, which is there's really no way to determine how many unlicensed pets are, are in San Jose. Right. Um, okay. Uh, I believe that these numbers of pets who are unlicensed are much higher than the pets who are licensed. And, and this information, I think, would be pertinent um, for my colleagues to consider moving forward to provide uh, an exemption to families who are un unable to uh, afford this um, fee. Um, it's also noted in the presentation that the purpose of pet licensing is to ensure all dogs and cats have proof of rabies vaccinations, which complies with the state rabies um, mandate. Um, would it be fair to say that individuals who are unable to afford this fee could inadvertently contribute to residents ultimately not licensing their pet, um, thus preventing the city from ensuring that all pets are, are vaccinated? Yeah, I, I think at risk of answering for Matt. I think there's probably a r risk there. I know that the, my understanding is that the cost of the rabies vaccination itself is probably more substantial than the, than the, than the permit. So that's probably the biggest factor, mm -hmm. but I'm sure that the permit fee weighs into that to some extent. Do we think that by providing this uh, exemption, we can expect an increase in folks who license their pets and comply with the state rabies um, requirement? I think that's a fair statement to make. I don't know the number. I don't know how mm -hmm. much, but you can probably yeah. get some, but what is significant, uh, that we don't know. Is there a current enforcement mechanism that ensures residents pay their late licensing fees? Um. <laughs> you went all the way back up there, Matt. Director of Public Works again, sorry. Um, there's not an active program to seek enforcement, if that's what you're asking for. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's not an active, okay. we don't send officers out to go and verify if they still have yeah. the animals or not and so forth. All but right, I just, want, just they, wanted to make sure. But I think we send letters, though, right? We yeah, send, we send letters, we send outreach and so forth. But we, okay. So just in forms of renewal notices and send reminders and those kind of things. Okay, that's good. No, thank you for that update. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for answering my questions and providing us with this information. And I'm really interested in rolling out this exemption as a pilot program, whether it's done by offering it to residents 
meeting certain income eligibility criteria or through targeted uh, zip codes, similar to what is used to offer low-cost spay and neuter um, for targeted zip codes. So I appreciate your time and um, the answering of my questions. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Councilmember. Appreciate that. And I should say welcome to our San Jose State Journalism students. Great to have you all here. Let's go over to Councilmember Torres. Great. Let's go Spartans. Awesome. So <clears throat> thank you so much, Jim, and the Budget Office for, for this wonderful, huge memo booklet that we got. Some um, really <clears throat> important stuff. And I do like that our, our budget is pretty even, but we're definitely not out of the woods. And of course, with that, there are, there are areas of concern, like uh, you know we're under underperforming in the, in the building and structure 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 construction tax, the the construction and conveyance tax, our sales tax. Um, but I'm going to pinpoint some very very important stuff in this uh, in this uh, presentation. Uh, just like Councilmember Ortiz, I am super excited that we, we have found funds to help OXA with their, with the, their, their community center. The African American Community Service Agency is a, is a wonderful organization and a wonderful building where our community comes and feels safe and gets the resources they need uh, to succeed, right? Especially our, our small but mighty uh, black community. So. Uh, I'm so glad that we, we were able to find some funding. And darn it, Matt, you went all the way up there and I have a question on, I'm gonna pick. <laughs> so I'll keep going with my talking points until you get down here because it's always the awkward walk down. Um, I'm glad to see that we continue to, to support Med 30. Uh, our firefighters need all the support that they can get, uh, especially since they are responding to, to uh, medical calls more than anything else now. Um, so, um, my question, because I have it, I have it right here in my in my in my brain, uh, Matt, is the Councilmember Tease I think just mentioned that going to um, the fee waiver based on zip code is is that is that something that 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 is going to help us in the long run? Is that something we should be moving forward with? Atlas Director of Public Works, the, um, what is the objective is what I would ask. And so if the objective, so to say whether I'm meeting the objective, I'd have to ask that question based on yeah, the reason. Yeah, so, so I think for example, I don't know if we do it, uh, we, we do it, uh, we still do it, but I know that in years past, we've had, uh, we've had spay and neutering programs, right, just for targeted zip codes. And I think it was for one breed, I think it was Chihuahuas, because yeah. we all know that Chihuahuas, yes. you know, were popular in 951127, 95116, and 95, I forgot the other zip code. Um, but, um, and, and I say this because, I say this because it's when, when, you know, multi-generational families living in a, in a house, an apartment, in one of our most affected zip codes, right? They have to either they have to either decide whether to spend you know money on rent or money on food um, or feed their kids. But we all know that that you know furry furry friends should be for everyone, right? You sh we shouldn't just rich people shouldn't just have 
furry friends, right? But our most underserved community should be able to have our furry friends. So um, I know I know that uh, that Councilmember Ortiz brought it up, but is that something maybe that we can we can hone in is making it just based on on zip code? So if directed by council, sure, we could, and as opposed to doing income base, we could focus on zip code. If it's the entire zip code, or if it's a portion of the zip code, we just would need what kind of guidance, and then through the budget office, through the budget process, we could identify what the impacts would be of those choices. Okay, great. Uh, and then the, the other, that's that's it for me, okay. sorry. I don't know if anybody has any questions with, uh, for Matt, so just stay down here at this point. Uh, the, the other one is, is I, I'm glad that we're we're starting to to tackle the opiate crisis as a city. Uh, it's very very important. It's very unfortunate that I've had family members pass away because of uh, overdose of, on opiates, uh, and so I'm so glad that we are doing that. And I know that Councilmember Dwan um, uh, brought it up. My question my, uh, my question is is um, where where are we getting this money from? And it's going to go to. I, I think I heard in the in 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 your answer to Councilmember Duan, it's gonna go to our best providers? So to the answer to your question, so it is a settlement, the national settlement for opioid, I think I'm looking to our city attorney, uh, manufacturers and distributors of opioid related products that have entered into a national sort of settlement. And so there is an allocation to the states and then to the, the, the municipalities. And so that's where that funding comes from. So the amount of that $7 million over a, uh, I forget what the time period, an 18-year period is, is based on sort of those companies that are participating now, but we expect the number of companies that will participate in that settlement to grow, so that dollar amount's probably going going to grow. Um, so that's the first part of the question. And so to, to get us started, um, we, we do have, the funding is allocated into a couple different buckets. So one of them would be an opioid prevention grant program um, of about a total amount of about $475,000, $350,000 direct distribution uh, to non-profits, to non, non and then we've got some for uh, $75,000 for the program oversight of that and get it sort of stood up, um, as well as some capacity building and community learning um, within the best provider network uh, for about $50,000. So that whole program is about four, four, $475,000. Um, then we've got the other portion, about $120,000 for Narcan, and um, outreach and training for both city staff and, and community members. Um, we have some, about $6,000 for police department um, uh, training and uh, about $30,000 for the fire department to disseminate um, some public education material. So we have it sort of spread out a little bit throughout different departments, um, but we expect sort of a more holistic approach as we get into the proposed budget process. Okay, great. No, I th thank you for that, by the way. And um, also, I know that um, I saw that our our utility tax, such as um, our our cable tax, right, is really dipping really, 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 really low. Um, and so my question is, uh, as more people are cutting the the cord with cable, uh, just like me, I'm, I confess I, I have YouTube TV. The, um, you know, it's uh, our our cable tax is declining in revenue, obviously, right? And so, uh, do we do we are are we thinking about taxing uh, Netflix, Hulu to make up for, for our losses? Gotcha. So the, uh, so yeah, so the, we have a, a cable franchise fee. It's slightly different than a, than a utility tax. I know you and I were, were speaking earlier. So the, 
Um, the franchise fee is sort of based on the uh, several different providers of cable services. So if you're not one of those cable services, you're not paying a franchise fee. So if you are just, a, if you are as an individual, a customer of say Netflix or a Hulu, um, you're not paying, uh, they aren't paying that cable franchise fee. Um, that service, video streaming service, is also not a uh, part of our utility tax program. So if, uh, if a user is just getting video streaming services, there's no city revenue associated with that, with that product. So um, to be able to, uh, if we wanted to sort of bring that into the revenue fold, um, that would be actual, uh, a new tax measure that would have to go to the vote of the people. So you need a 50% plus one vote for a general, uh, general fund tax to be able to tax those streaming services. Okay, so to tax next Netflix and Hulu and Prime, et cetera, yeah, yeah. you have to do a, a, a okay. Um, same thing with, um, same thing with uh, the, the landlines. I know that we, were, we would get money from taxing landlines and phones. So that's, is, so what can we do to make up that loss via I don't, everybody has cell phones now, right? Or right. IPads, so. Um, so yeah, so we do, yeah. So we also have a u u utility tax related to telephone use. That does extend to cell phones, but what it doesn't extend to is the data package for a cell phone. So if you're using data, you're, you're cruising the web or you're streaming or something on your phone, that's not part of the telephone utility tax. And so um, and the reason why is that is a, um, we're not allowed to tax data per um, federal law. It's the uh, when inter inter Internet Freedom Act. Um, doesn't allow jurisdictions to be a place to tax on sort of cell phone data. And so that would require a change in federal law. Okay. Um, okay. So, so my request, and I don't know if, if I have to make a motion to it or add it in the motion, Mr. Mayor, but um, I, would, I would love to request an MBA on a poll on uh, taxing um, streaming services. So I don't know if that has to or if that could just, you know, be on the work plan, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. That might need to go to rules for an assessment of staff capacity and the lighting system that we use, but Lee, do you have thoughts on that? I was gonna say, I think if we were coming forward with a poll, we would probably share that in a different format rather than a manager's budget addendum for you guys to make a decision. Um, that certainly is something as we go explore possible revenue streams for stormwater and a variety of other things we could add a question to to see the political feasibility of our residents to do that tax. I would say that the cities that have chosen to do that over the last five years have been tied up in federal litigation. Um, so I, I think us that effort, um, you know, the risk reward might not technically be there moving forward, but we can certainly analyze that and have that conversation with you. But I, I think it would. Uh, probably come back to rules or directly to council on something like that when we do future polling around other measures. Okay, yeah, no, that, 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 that'd be great. And I'm not, you know, this is just, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not, you know, I know that SGASU Media is here and other folks will hear this. I am, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to tax them now. Um, I think that we need to study the, the issue because it is important. I mean, these, these, are, these are taxes that we've taxed, taxes that we've taxed already uh, and so um, it's just important that, that, that we continue to, to make up for that, for that loss because it is in the millions of dollars. If we, for the folks who didn't see this memo, it is in the millions of dollars and, and our city relies on, on, the, on these taxes. So, um, and then with that, it says that I'm running out of time and um, that's about it. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Councilmember. Councilmember Davis. Thank you.
Um, I want to thank you, Jim, and, and your whole team for this report. I know it's a ton of work and really appreciate it. And thank you uh, specifically for recognizing the grants for the Blue Zone project. So for my colleagues who may not have seen, um, if, you, if you remember from the budget process, I had requested uh, $150,000 from the city for, from our budget and uh, the mayor made it contingent on me receiving uh, the rest of the, the funds through, through grants, which I have done. We got a grant from Adobe for $100,000. We got a grant from the Health Trust for $50,000, another $50,000 from the Santa Clara Family Health Plan, and then just last week, the Board of Supervisors with the county matched our 150 with another 150. So we're recognizing the 350 from the external, um, the external grants, and together, the $500,000 will be used um, for the assessment, which is the first phase of the Blue Zones project. And that will determine our needs and resources to improve the health and well-being of our city and whether we want to go forward with a full uh, Blue Zones project to seek certification. For anyone listening who doesn't know, I know all my colleagues know because I've been bending their ear about this for over a year, uh, Blue Zones are places across the globe that naturally have people who live, more people than the average, live to 100, age 100, very healthy, um, and even beyond age 100. If you want to learn more, you can watch the Netflix documentary called Live to 100. Um, and we will be hosting a number of community events in June. We don't have exact dates yet, but we will form this community um, will have a community-based assessment. So what we look at and which neighborhoods we focus on will come from the community. I do want to thank Deputy City Manager Angel Rios and Assistant to the City Manager Laura Buzo um, for helping us go through the, the last year and figure out how we can incorporate the Blue Zones work into work we're already doing. And that is the Children and Youth Master Plan. Um, and so, as I said, we'll be kicking off this work this year, and, and it will be in partnership with the county um, and the community, as well as local business leaders, which will be led by Adobe, thankfully. Um, we will start with a focus on the neighborhoods identified in the master plan. And I wanna thank my colleagues, especially on the Neighborhood Services and Education Committee for their support. We've discussed this multiple times. We've discussed it in a joint uh, committee meeting with the county. And I also want to thank all my colleagues who joined in our longevity walks and or supported the Plaza, um, Plaza Azul Farmers Market here at City Hall. And a special, special thank you to Councilmember Torres and his staff for all of his work and partnership on Plaza Azul as well as taking on the longevity walks this year and beyond so that it will <coughs> live past my time on council. Awesome. Thanks, council member. Congratulations on that milestone. Really exciting and appreciate you driving that and finding outside resources as well. I think it's really exciting. I have your Blue Zone brochure sitting on my coffee table, actually. I point it out to people when they come over. Um, so that's great work. Uh, Vice Mayor. 
Thank you so much, and thank you so much for the report. There's always a lot of really good information here, and I really appreciate it. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about, as you mentioned, you know, setting aside the 13 uh, million, you know, for, um, uh, you know, just to set it aside so that we have 35 by the end of the fiscal year. It also occurred to me is as we start thinking about what's needed in future years, um, I know that there's a lot of unpredictability as to which way things will go, but um, I, I specifically was thinking about many of the measures and you know at the time of which things will sunset. So I know that um, Councilmember Torres talked a little bit about you know uh, taxes and fees and all that kind of stuff and. You know, I'm just wondering, I know you do the five-year forecast, but, you know, at some point we're going to have to think about, you know, whether things get extended or not. So I'd like to hear a little bit more when you come back um, during the budget time frame to, to, you know, at least let us know when is the appropriate time that these things are going to come up because I think that it, it also helps as you're looking at the, you know, five-year forecast. The other thing I wanted to mention is that, um, Thank you for all the work that has really been done on animal care services. Um, and uh, Matt and his team have really done a lot of good work. Um, I want to mention that the animal care and services uh, license fee is a, is a good idea. I would um, uh, like to see sort of the differences between uh, a fee waiver based on zip code, which would only apply to certain areas versus uh, it being income-based, because I know that there are a lot of people, you know, who maybe, I mean, if you happen to fall just outside that zip code, right, um, it, it, it's sort of like inequitable, at least that's how I interpret it. So I think that if it was income-based, then it would be a more broader, more equitable kind of thing. And you mentioned some of the um, programs that already do that, uh, to me it seems like it would be at least a, a test pilot to, to see, hey, you know, even if you wanted to try it for a year, does it work, you know? Um, to me, that would be something that um, I would see as, as you know, a, a, a better way of trying to get good information uh, to find out, you know, uh, more, more of the details that some of the council members are asking for. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Vice Mayor. Councilor Jimenez. Thank you. Just a quick question on, on slide eight, I think it was. I'm not sure if you can pull it up, but or you, you probably don't need to pull it up, but uh, you mentioned the janitorial contract and some issues there, and I think allocating, I think it was 1.2 million or whatever it was. Do you happen to know if the workers for the janitorial company, if they were paid, or, or did how did the company handle that as it relates to the challenges they had with, with the, the their... Yes, so the workers were absolutely paid. I mean, that's the assumption. I think the invoice just got paid later than where it should have been paid. Um, but the it just the uh, the payment actually occurred in fiscal year 23-24 instead of 22-23. So it was related to invoices received in uh, uh, April and May was a, a piece of, of why we had to do the adjustment this year. But my understanding is it was uh, it was. Uh, it's sort of an administrative issue between us and the contractor, but nothing related to the employees themselves. Okay. They were compensated okay. And I asked because... As per the uh, agreement. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad it was seamless for the employees. I would hate that, that you know, there were some issues like this that it would impact the employees and their lives. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Councilmember. Councilmember Batra. Thank you, Jim, for the detail. 
and extremely accurate report. I had told you at the time of the budget last year that your track record of being able to make these projections is so good and I would not want it to be anything different but for hoping that this year there will be inaccuracy of kind which will, because we were predicting potentially deficit. I'm so glad that you brought a report which is a very happy report. You have not asked any mid-course corrections despite the line items changing Everything we propose to do is still on track to be done. We are not going to have any additional deficit as a result of what we are doing, increase in expenses or decrease in any of those. So congratulations for keeping your track record going. I do have a couple of items I want to ask clarification on. <clears throat> At the time of the budget, one of the areas I was very concerned about in my district and I requested a million dollar for the safety project, electrical uh, lights and all that in the Via Hoffmonte area. Thank you for getting that million dollar grant from CDBG and keeping that project on track. I recently met with all the residents and the owners of the properties in there. They are greatly appreciative of all the work the city has done to make them safer. Regarding the animal shelter project, I think we have proposed that we do the fee waiver and I think with like Vice Mayor, my suggestion will be to keep evaluating in terms of income based rather than a geography based uh, because that's the fairest way we help the people who need help. Now, if we do this program, do you see any positive from this one in terms of either saving something elsewhere, either in any other program, or have we found a, a positive unintended consequence of doing this one that we are likely to save some money somewhere else or get something more effective? Matt may need to walk down. <laughs> and I, yeah, Matt has any ideas. I, I don't know that we would necessarily see cost savings. I think you know what the benefit could potentially be is you're bringing more people into the fold to get a license, and so that's a good thing. That means you would have more you know, uh, folks accounted for into the system, and you would have more folks potentially you know, spay and neutering their, their pets and having a rabies certificate, which would be the most important thing. So that could be a, a, uh, you know, one of the sort of programmatic out out outcomes, I don't know how big that would be. I don't know if you'd see really cost saving potentially, but um, yeah, so I think, I think Matt agrees. <laughs> Matt agrees, okay, <laughs> good, take that. Yeah. <laughs> Matt trained me well, so that's why I'm saying that. Okay. And the comments which were made before by my colleague here about the Med 30, I continue to support that with the level of activities which is needed to support our unsheltered, sheltered everybody, and that activity is very important, so I continue to support. I did that at the time of the budget, and I continue to support that one again today. And uh, 
there's one item in terms of your unemployment rate has gone up from 2.4 to 4 percent, which is still better than the state of California as it has always been. Where does the line item, I would read, the negative impact in terms of the revenue about that unemployment rate rising, if there is a place to read that? Uh, yeah, I don't, though, so the unemployment rate itself is just, is, you know, it's, it's interesting thing. So what you really, what we care about the most is number of people that are employed. So that's, that's, th that's going up. So the more people that are employed, you know, that's how uh, it, it drives revenue. So when we look at the different economists that help us with the forecasting, employment growth is one of the main things. Um, you know, I think the unemployment would be um, a reflection of some of the layoffs that we've been seeing, but also, you know, theoretically, if you have jobs going up and your unemployment goes up, that means more folks are technically entering into the workforce. So that not necessarily a negative thing if the unemployment rate goes up, if the number of people employed are also going up. Um, I think it's still an indication of relative softness. I think the unemployment, the number of employed people who uh, is only up less than a percent year over year. So I think my big takeaway is that it's a, is definitely a softer employment environment than it had been previously. Um, and so we expect to see that reflected in sales tax with lower growth. And I think our tentative estimates are still that you would sort of end this fiscal year slightly lower than where we ended last fiscal year, but that's part of our projections. But I think that's, and Selena was reminding me, that's probably where you would start to see it first would be in sales tax. So that you would see a slowing growth in sales tax, which is what we're kind of seeing. Okay, thank you. I'm looking forward to the study session because several people have approached during this time suggesting some investments we can make and increase our revenue. And, and I think we'll discuss more in detail at the study session. But I really like those suggestions because nothing is better than increasing our revenue rather than looking towards the cost cuts here and there. And revenue enhancers, we're willing to make more investments as long as they're proven. Okay? So hoping to look forward to having that discussion in the budget session. Thank you again for all the great work you've done in the report and even more accurately having your projections, which keep us on the positive track. Well, I wish I could take all the credit for the, for the projections, but a lot of people at this table are, are really the ones that right. keep me in line, that I'll, I'll I arm wrestle with on a daily I'll, basis about I'll, what I'll they I'll should be. I'll modify my compliment. Congratulations and thank you to the team which you lead, okay, for doing that. Okay, great, thank you, council member. Uh, Jim, just wanted to ask, uh, about the risk we may face around commercial property reassessment. What's your current thinking on how exposed to that we are and how it may play out over the coming year or whatever the right time frame is? I mean, the short answer is I don't know. Um, and that's the trickiest thing about the commercial side of the property tax is just not um, uh, easily translatable data that results in projections. So, you know, when we report residential property transactions, that's sort of data set that goes back forever. It's reported on on a regular basis. Commercial property changes hands, you know, much less frequently. Um, you know, we do have relatively less exposure in San Jose than compared to maybe other major businesses because we are sort of more real estate um, residential than we are commercial broadly. So we're a little bit less in, in, impacted, but, um, we do expect to see an impact. I think the feeling is that that impact is probably gonna hit more in the 25, 26 range and not the 24, 25 range. 
um, yeah, which makes I'm it even trickier to outreach. Um, I know that you know we're talking to our uh, planning, building, code enforcement director. Certainly nervous about that in in uh, that environment. So we're we're thinking about that, and we're trying to to be. I mean, we got to be careful because you don't want to be too conservative. Property tax is such a large revenue category that we can't be too too defensive there. So we got to find the right way to be defensive, uh, a little bit conservative, but still not leaving money that could have otherwise be put on the, the table. So that'll be our challenge. Yeah, understood. Um, I'm also hearing what you are about time frame. Do you have an analysis of how many leases and total square footage come up over the next 18 months? That to me no. feels like an obvious trigger for a property tax reassessment, right? If, if major tenants don't renew. Hi, Selena Ubondo, assistant to the city manager. I was actually just at a property tax meeting yesterday and Larry Stone was there speaking to all of us. And one of the things he was talking about was that the county, the assessor's office as well, is really worried about the commercial reassessments. So the county is actually opening their reassessment portal for commercial um, properties to start asking for their buildings to be reassessed five months earlier than they usually do because they want to get ahead of the game. Yeah. They, they as well, they kept telling us though, when everyone's trying to ask for them to make predictions, he kept saying, I can tell you what happened in the past. I can tell you what's happening now. I will not make predictions about the future. Everyone tried to get him to do that. So they are saying that hopefully though, as this portal is opening, they hopefully start getting a little bit more information. And as that is available, they will definitely start passing it on to us. We meet quarterly with them. And he also did discuss, he actually brought up San Jose's vacancy rates for office buildings. He did bring that up as one of his talking points. That as, we have a high as vacancy a, rate. <laughs> that we have a high rate of vacancy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that we will have some advance warning. It's good to know that you're meeting quarterly and that they're opening the window early. So at least we'll, we'll get an early indication, which may lead to adjustments in terms of what we want to do here. It's definitely the biggest concern I see out on the horizon just over the next couple of years here. Um, okay, that was all I had. I don't see any other hands from colleagues. Thank you all again for your great work on the mid-year report. And with that, I believe we're ready to vote. Motion passes unanimously. Great, thank you all again. Okay, <clears throat> we are on to item 3.4, which is the 23-24 City Council Focus Area Second Quarter Status Report, and we'll kick off with a staff presentation. Uh, thank you, good afternoon, Honorable Mayor. City Council members, of, uh, members of the public and city staff, Dolan Beckel here, Chief of Staff for the City Manager. So like the previous presentation, while staff are settling in, I'll get us moving, because I know after this topic, we also have a study session, potentially the last study session during a Tuesday to occur. So I'm gonna keep, keep us moving. Today, we are providing the City Council focus area, quarterly status report covering the second quarter of the fiscal year from October 1st, 2023 to December 31st, 2023. Joining me in the box are the Focus Area Executive Sponsors, who you can see up there, and they'll introduce themselves during the presentation. Senior staff are in the audience as well to answer any questions later today. 
This report updates the council and the community on the four city council focus areas approved by council, those being one, increasing community safety, two, reducing unsheltered homelessness, three, cleaning up our neighborhoods, and four, attracting investment in jobs and housing. This slide serves a reminder that in addition to driving these key focus area outcomes for our community, city staff and our partners continue to deliver 98 core services and 264 programs for our residents who rely on them on a daily basis. I'll now turn the presentation over to Assistant City Manager Lee Wilcox. Thank you, Dolan. As Dolan mentioned, I'm Lee Wilcox and I am the executive sponsor of Increasing Community Safety. Over the last quarter, we did not see significant change in the number of city residents rating San Jose as a very safe or somewhat safe place. Fewer residents who reported the city was somewhat unsafe or unsafe cited continued to cite homelessness, theft, crime as the top reasons. So from first quarter to the second quarter, we did not see substantial change. I do want to point out this slide and the, the lack of data under performance for property crime rates and violent crime rates. As we've mentioned in the past um, in a few different informational memorandums as well as uh, PISFIS, we are currently in the process of transitioning to the National Incident-Based Reporting System, uh, referred to as NIBRS. This is a requirement from the Department of Justice uh, and the federal government that all police departments throughout the country transition to this. As part of that transition, it has, necess it, it has required us to do a lot of manual transition of records to be put into that system, and thus our error rate right now is considerably high. This is not uh, uh, uncharted territory as all the other cities that have already um, gone through this process are in similar situations such as us. So we've been working with our vendor as well as staff in the Bureau of Technical Services to address this. We are nearly caught up with part of the backlog and I do think for the third quarter report, um, we will be able to share some of this data. But we're happy uh, police departments on hand as, as well as I am to answer any questions around this transition and we will be updating the PISFIS committee during the next bi-monthly police department uh, report on this issue. With that said, some of the data that we do get on a daily basis from the police department that still does need to uh, be verified does not indicate uh, a high level of change in any crime throughout the city from quarter one to quarter two. Property crime, larceny, burglary also um, appear to be slightly declining. However, some vehicle thefts appear to be slightly increasing. For violent crime, rape and robbery reports continue to be um, steady from quarter one to quarter two. Thus far in the year, the city has seen 16 homicides um, throughout the city. This is a small decline. At this time last year, we were over 20. Um, so some improvement, but not a lot of improvement. I do want to say that because of the data uh, not being available, and one of the things that our execution team around uh, increasing community safety has continued to look at is our 911 response rate. And so while it's not on this slide, I do want to say for priority one calls, we have a goal of six minutes for priority one. In the first quarter of the year, we were about seven and a half minutes in responding, so slightly over that goal. For the second quarter, we were at seven minutes, so slight improvement. And then for priority two calls, we do have a goal of 11 minutes. And in the first quarter, we were roughly 25 minutes um, and have improved by a minute in the second quarter to 24 minutes. 
sorry. And then lastly, I do want to state um, on the traffic fatalities that there were nine traffic fatalities over the second quarter, bringing us up to a total of 26 so far in the city. For this slide, I want to showcase um, our accomplishments over the last quarter. We've hired 31 police officers and two CSOs throughout the second quarter. As, um, as of January, we still have 122 vacancies and uh, for sworn police officers and 11 CSOs remain. Police Department has launched the Organized Retail, uh, retail Theft Task Force as well as the other week with council's approval, I passed the catalytic converter theft ordinance. In addition, DOT's Vision Zero team continues to work and reduce traffic fatalities. This includes uh, receiving a prestigious grant from the US Department of Transportation, which will fund street safety improvements at the city's four intersections that have received the most fatality and severe injuries over the last five years. And then lastly, throughout the next quarter, our team has three large focus areas, the first being around recruiting and hiring of San Jose Police Department officers, the city and county 911-988 transfer pilot, which we'll be discussing uh, in a few weeks, as well as the scoping for our automated speed enforcement program and finalizing and finishing 14 pedestrian safety projects that have been outlined to the Transportation Environment Committee over the last several months. With that, I'm going to turn the presentation over to Omar Passens. Uh, thank you, Lee. Uh, good, uh, good afternoon, uh, Mayor and Council, members of the public. Uh, my name is Omar Passens, Deputy City Manager for Homelessness and Executive Sponsor for this uh, Reducing Unsheltered Homelessness Focus Area. Uh, the City uh, has long worked with many regional partners to address homelessness and uh, as noted during the budget process, the City's role with regard to homelessness includes many areas in addition to the performance metrics listed here. As a threshold matter, I just would like to, excuse me, thank the Santa Clara County Office of supportive housing uh, for their partnership in developing the data needed to produce this scorecard. The rate of inflow within the city specifically, so that's that top line measure that's listed there, uh, between for the period listed is 1.68 to 1, which is down from uh, even higher, roughly 2 to 1 in terms of households. I mean, functionally, what that means is the number of people, or the number of households that are entering uh, homelessness while still greater than one-to-one -one is coming, coming down, which is a, a testament to many of the activities going on both uh, in the city driving forward and, and, and as a region. Uh, it also underscores why the city's support for the regional homelessness prevention system is so critical and why we continue to seek additional ways uh, to increase prevention efforts. You can also see in uh, boxes one and two under the performance measure section that prevention and permanent housing are extremely effective tools because they keep people off the streets at extremely high rates. Boxes three and four help demonstrate the city's ongoing commitment to increasing temporary supply so that the people who live on San Jose streets in places that are not meant for human habitation on any given night have a safe place while those permanent options are identified. In fact, the city of San Jose is responsible with its partners for the lion's share of the increase in those temporary sort of um, uh, safer opportunities in our region. Uh, this slide uh, presents insights about performance across the four measures as well as key programs, budget snapshots, 
for specific bodies of work and actual items that were completed in the last quarter. In future reports, that last row will include a comparison of what we plan to accomplish uh, versus what we actually accomplished. One fundamental point to understand, there is not enough money to fund all of the off-street parking or interim housing that would be needed nor all of the uh, services that the more than 4,000 people in our community need. So while we continue to push for permanent solutions and to develop safe opportunities that are off the street, part of what we have to do as a city is better manage the impacts of this crisis on our neighborhoods. That includes people who are experiencing homelessness who are part of our neighborhoods. It also includes business owners and um, everybody else in our community um, and, in, and protecting our environment. In future reports, the, the bottom row will compare what we plan to actually accomplish with the previous quarter. Because it is a new addition at this time, it lists key accomplishments, like uh, d the development of the city's first implementation plan for addressing homelessness. Uh, this, this final slide uh, provides descriptions of several uh, areas, including critical programs uh, and housing that address among the most important aspects of, of addressing homelessness, preventing it and permanently ending it. From a policy perspective, one key item uh, that's highlighted here is the development of a framework for shared public spaces to bring back to council that will establish and refine criteria for where people may not sleep, uh, where they should be allowed to sleep overnight, including things like safe outdoor sleeping sites, and guiding principles that apply equally to all residents who use public buildings and property. Critical plans uh, in this next quarter include um, you know, no, three notices of funds availability for more permanent housing, awarding the Berryessa RV supported parking contract to move towards opening that site, and pushing forward on two key expansions of interim housing. With that, I'll turn it over to Angel Rios. Thank you, Omar. Uh, Angel Rios, Deputy City Manager and I'll address cleaning up our neighborhoods. And this is a, this is a section of body of work that uh, Omar and I uh, co-lead. I handle, I oversee the neighborhood blight and Omar oversees the encampment management. Uh, Beautify SJ neighborhood blight reduction programs are the core delivery system for the city's blight reduction and beautification strategy that focuses on working collaboratively with neighborhood associations, businesses, and residents to improve the cleanliness of our city. From an outcome perspective, looking at the outcome measures, cleanliness perception for our city overall and your neighborhood increased slightly from quarter one to quarter two and remained the same for downtown. With respect to performance, uh, Beautify SJ blight response times, um, turning to the uh, BSJ blight response times, graffiti removal and encampment trash services remain above the target while illegal dumping response times have improved, going from 67% in quarter one to 76% in quarter two. The code enforcement case backlog continues to decline, but at a modest pace. As noted in the memo, we recommend modifying the code enforcement case backlog measure in future reports. Instead of the current format, which shows the percentage change in backlog cases from quarter to quarter, we'll show the total number of cases in the code enforcement case backlog for the quarter. We think this will better contextualize and total, uh, the total caseload and will also allow us to break down the backlog by different case types, such as building code, uh, substandard housing, solid waste, and graffiti, which may give us insight into our progress on case types most relevant to blight reduction. The performance of 311 satisfaction has remained stable from quarter one to quarter two 
In comparison to the corresponding periods last year, three out of the four services have seen an increase in customer satisfaction scores. The SJ311 team is actively collaborating with the service teams to analyze and devise strategies aimed at enhancing customer satisfaction scores, aligning with the target of achieving a closer to 80% customer satisfaction rate. Um, here, here we have our key budget programs, current resources, and in the last row, our key accomplishments for the last quarter. I'll note a few highlights. Uh, with respect to Beautify San Jose, in the last so slide, we see the improvement in the illegal dumping response times. We note here that along with the reduction in response times, we've also completed almost 1,000 more service requests in quarter two than in quarter one, and have made progress in installing 300 illegal dumping sign deterrents. Looking at code enforcement's key accomplishments, the FAST program completed focus areas one and two last quarter. For these areas, Staff serviced over 6,300 parcels and saw a 13% reduction in blight violations after the first inspection and 60% reduction in blight violations after the first citation. Staff also gained key insights and feedback from residents. While only approximately 2% of properties received cit uh, citation, staff has added a, a warning notice step ahead of the citation for the remaining focus area. I'm getting some feedback, so I apologize for um, SJ311 in quarter two, a significant, uh, in quarter two we had a significant focus uh, for SJ311 uh, and it was dedicated to advancing the development of the new vehicle concerns service. This service aims to streamline the process for residents to report issues related to parking violations or other vehicle related matters and on the next slide, we'll discuss the rollout plans for this service. On this slide, we have our goals for the current quarter. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll note some highlights. With Beautify SJ, you can see in our planned accomplishments for BSJ, we're continuing to focus on improvements in the legal dumping response times with the target of meeting the 80% goal in quarter three. We also plan to revisit encampment management abatement criteria to update our setback guideline, guidelines. And as an, evolving, uh, as an evolving city service, periodic review and updates are necessary to keep up with lessons learned and incorporate best practices. As for code, we're proceeding with implementation of the FAST program, targeting areas three and four for quarter three. Area three is located in the Cassell neighborhood and area four is located in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood both in District 5. For SJ311, we have plans to deploy two new services during this quarter, street sweeping, uh, lookup, and the sewer issues services are planned, service are planned for deployment this quarter, followed closely by the vehicle concern service, planned to go live in March, April timeframe. Street sweeping lookup uh, will allow residents to look up their street sweep sweeping schedule and the sewer issues will allow residents to report problems with the sewer system. And with that, I'll turn this over to Rob. Good afternoon, Council. Uh, Rob Lloyd, WC Manager, and I share this focus area with my colleague Rosalind Huey, uh, WC Manager and Acting Housing Director. Uh, the city continues to see conditions holding down the volume of housing entitlement and completed units. Interest rates, insurance, and construction uh, material costs 
tied directly to the 62% reduction in entitlements quarter to quarter uh, previous year and the 43% lesser completed housing units for this quarter ended compared to previous year. The cost of development study session in October of 2023 provided detailed information and feedback from the development community on the state of development. Staff is exploring alternatives to kickstart activity and to make the city's processes uh, easier. Speed of housing permits missed targets and declined due to a staffing vacancy and focus on cellular permitting with required deadlines. PBC is monitoring and working to get close to goal in quarter three and current trends have us tracking towards goal. Thank you, Rob. Rosalind Huey, Deputy City Manager, Acting Housing Director. And just real briefly to make a note uh, regarding our job start rates. And so we're glad to uh, share with you um, that it, the rate is up 1.1%. That actually we know that represents the very modest growth given our current economic conditions. Um, and as it relates to downtown um, activity rates, we are very pleased to share um, this increase both over uh, quarter two of 2022, which you can see is a 51% increase in terms of um, downtown activity uh, and actually a 39% increase from quarter one. Um, so we're very excited um, about this measure. Clearly people um, are coming downtown more often and feeling more comfortable there. Uh, we know that during quarter two, this is probably mostly due to um, the array of holiday um, activity and events being held in our downtown. On the next slide, uh, for the housing units added to the city, work was completed re related to the cost of development study session and critically, the approval of the city's housing element by the state. On activity, you see 235 affordable housing units were permitted in quarter two. Staff dedicated to affordable housing production are concentrating on regular coordination sessions across city teams to ensure those units are prioritized and occur quickly. For speed of housing permit reviews, you see process improvements that increase self-service options and that accelerate permitting for public self-start and SJE plans for building permits, the fire marshal's online inspection scheduling, refresh website and policies are live, and intake appointments were eliminated to reduce steps. Just to give uh, some, some special credit to the team, processing currently is down to two days within receipt versus 90 days prior before our work and focus on this effort. And in our downtown, our focus continues to be improving the entire downtown district, uh, including storefront activations, programming, and marketing throughout the downtown. Additionally, our downtown manager and coordinator are conducting corporate outreach visits to top employers located downtown. And highlights included in Q2 um, include maintaining the downtown walking beat shift with coverage of 70%, which is up 54% year over year, the opening of Pellier Park, and the encampment resolution along the Guadalupe River, where over 90 of our residents were moved into shelter. So for our last slide, on housing units added to the city, um, city council considerations include residential incentives, adaptive reuse, 
and continuing progress on the fee framework that impacts development. Essential work for this quarter also involves moving forward with our certified housing element plan and the work that it creates for staff, uh, as well as hiring staff focused on affordable housing. Council has been clear about filling those key positions. Updating the accessory dwelling unit ordinance makes uh, must make significant progress this quarter to finish in quarter four as uh, projected. For speed of housing permit reviews, we have considerations related to responding to Builders Remedy, and we'll be bringing forward pieces of the housing element for implementation to City Council. On deliverables, you also see added process improvements, work for permitting ease and speed, and these are investments for both public and staff. So as it relates to downtown, the areas that we're gonna be focusing on uh, in Q3 um, is city staff actually in several different departments, including Office of Economic Development, Cultural Affairs, Police Department, and Code Enforcement. We'll be spending a significant time on working on the unpermitted vendor, vendor issue uh, throughout um, our downtown, and particularly fo focusing on some of the spring events that we know are coming up um, at our venues. Um, we will be bringing uh, to City Council, um, actually next month, the extension of the Downtown High Rise Incentive Program. Um, we will be implementing the San Pedro Pedestrian Mall Law that Council recently took action on. Uh, and we're really excited that we'll be able to execute um, some on three uh, leases for um, our first pop-up retail spaces throughout the downtown, so very excited about that. Um, and very excited, uh, in March, uh, we'll be uh, supporting what we know will be a very successful NVIDIA GTC conference. Uh, so staff will be supporting that effort. Um, and then lastly, there will be uh, continued support on the acquisition of property for uh, the PMI uh, project, Home Key project located in downtown. And with that, I'm turning it over to Dolan Beckel. Thank you, Rosalind. Uh, that concludes our reports. We're available for questions, as is senior staff in the audience. Thank you for your time. Great. Thanks so much. Really helpful to get that snapshot of performance and what's ahead. Let's go to public comment first. I have no cards for this item. Okay, great. So we are back to the council. <clears throat> we'll go to Councilor Davis. Thank you all for this report. I appreciate all the work that goes into tracking this info as well as adjusting operations in response to these and the other measures, the, I'm sure many other measures that you track. Um, regarding increasing community safety, per, in particular the performance measures, Lee, since you report on this, I'm gonna ask you and you can phone a friend, I know he's up there. Um, why are we doing quarter over quarter comparisons instead of year over year comparisons for the same quarter? on those. We do um, year over year, if I remember correctly, for the attracting investment in jobs and housing. So I'm just wondering if it's more useful to do it quarter over quarter versus year over year? Yeah, I, w I would think for a policy making board such as yourself, year over year would probably be more valuable. Um, I would say that there was a lot of conversation with this transition committee about quarter by quarter to see if there were trends that shifted year to year and, and something that PD needed to look at. I can tell the council that, you know, the assistant chief as well as the deputy chiefs up there and the captains look at this on a daily, if not weekly basis to make those decisions, you know, on an operational basis. 
Um, so year over year is, is probably a better approach, council member. I would say, as I mentioned too, I think, you know, there's property crime rates and violent crime rates. Sometimes some of those are outside of our control. Um, and so I know several of us have talked about looking at other measures, as I mentioned, our, you know, our, uh, cabinet execution team and, and cabinet. We've looked at 911 response times pretty diligently, as well as aggravated assaults, which paints a little bit of a better picture um, of, of crime throughout a city. So I think we're open to those type of changes. Thank you. I, I think it's really important for us to, um, to get your perspectives on what you think is more actionable. Um, for us, for policy, and also for you in operations. And if those are different, I'd appreciate that discussion as well um, on on this topic or or any of of the topics I think that's really important um, I've identified one I, I really think the scorecard and the dashboard is trying to do double duty and I'm not sure that it's um, I, I'm not sure that it's it's doing us any favors by doing that because it's both for operations, which is more for data-driven decisions for the city manager's office, and then also to help us inform policy. So I think we need to figure that out. Um, obviously, we have to hold the city manager accountable and, and responsible for effective and efficient operations. So there's some overlap there. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet, um, but I do think that having these reports every quarter is maybe a little bit of overkill, which is why I have uh, the memo that we put out, and it did come out real, we put it in real late last night, so if, I'm not sure if everybody got a chance to, to read it. Um, but I do think that we need to align this with um, the, the study, the focus areas on the policies that we've already passed. So I've identified the city and county planned and homelessness as one of those areas for alignment in my memo, as well as um, just bringing the scorecard back to us just twice a year instead of four times a year. I think that would help with the load balancing for all of you doing all of the work and informing the policy because we're not making, we're making policy changes and plans for those policy changes really more at the budget time than any other time. And then having one more check-in, you know, six months later, I think makes sense. But um, other than that, I just think you guys are doing a lot of work quarterly to come to us and to do these reports as opposed to just keeping the scorecards and dashboards updated online and all that. So that's what's included in my, in my memo and that's what I'm moving right now. I am moving my memo. <laughs> Great. Um, let me go to Councilmember Ortiz first, and then I'll offer a few comments. <clears throat> Thank you, Mayor. Appreciate that. Um, I want to begin my comments by thanking staff from all of our departments, be it PRNS, Housing, Public Works, OED, and DOT. Thank you for sharing your expertise and for taking on the challenge of focus in the face of dozens of core services and programs you're tasked with delivering every day. Uh, I agree with the memo from Councilmember Davis. Sorry, I didn't second, I was a little slow there. Uh, recommending that we hear this report uh, biannually, and I think it's important to give staff the necessary time to actually execute on the deliverables we're asking of them, and receive through reports that carry up to data, such as uh, numbers from the County Office of Supportive Housing. <clears throat> 
there's a lot of good updates to read and speak to, but I'll focus and speak to uh, ones important to myself and to um, my constituents. In the focus area of reducing unsheltered homelessness, it's exciting to see that the statistic that many of us quote here on this dais, that every one individual we house, two or more become homeless, um, is, is starting to no longer be true. And um, this fills uh, me with hope, knowing that the choices of both housing first and prioritizing the construction of affordable housing and prevent, uh, funding prevention services are demonstrating positive results. I also want to share credit with our school districts and our community-based organizations who've taken on the challenge of recognizing um, instability, especially for our children and families, and are making referrals to our offices um, or agencies that can help. Although we are seeing this drop, uh, a key priority has been addressing youth homelessness. As I've learned that Eastside Union High School District has approximately 900 unhoused students compared to 300 in 2020. It's harrowing to know that Spotlight has named East San Jose as the epicenter of youth homelessness here in the county. Um, as we look towards metrics that measure success in this focus area, I'd like to understand how staff identifies and disaggregates unhoused youth within data reporting, and if there's a way to include um, this story with uh, a dashboard. Um, uh, any thoughts about that from staff? Uh, Councilmember Ortiz, I think one of the one of the benefits of the partnership with uh, the County Office of Supportive Housing that provides that continuum of care overall regional leadership is is the the ability to to sort of think through how to disaggregate the different youth populations. I think the the excuse me the statistic you mentioned may be related to sort of a McKinney-Vento definition, which not to get too far in the weeds, but is is not the same as the unsheltered population that we see on the streets. So I think part of what we really need to do in, in partnership with the county is, is get that information, uh, work with the Santa Clara County Office of Ed and those mm -hmm. two bodies to understand how we support support our youth. I think you saw it in the Children and Youth Master Plan that, uh, that the team brought forward before and, and we're continuing to look at ways to sort of even further align with the county on, on that youth, those youth homelessness issues. That's, that's great. And what about essentially disaggregating the data to learn, you know, essentially just having a clear picture on who is actually homeless, whether it's a youth, a veteran, um, someone leaving incarceration, which I know we see a lot um, for youth in juvenile hall, or, you know, for instance, I know that a lot of LGBTQ uh, communities suffer from this as well. Is there, do we, are we disaggregating this information? Uh, my apologies. Yes, I, I thought I had my mind on youth because you had mentioned that specifically, but we currently actually do get disaggregated data on a variety of these populations, uh, veterans, homeless youth, um, 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 seniors. So the, that information comes to us, and I think part of our challenge is having the um, robust alignment of, of resourcing even within the city to address these issues. Okay, thank you. But I know obviously we have safety nets in place. The challenges of instability are, are traumatizing and, and can have lasting effects on, on these individuals, especially our, our youth. Um, in the focus area of increasing community safety, um, I do just wanna say that I am interested in making sure that we are expanding um, the trust program and exploring alternative uh, first responders. Uh, but I also wanna understand, you know, every, every neighborhood association, my residents are saying that um, we don't have enough officers, um, to address the day-to-day -day concerns that they're experiencing in, in the neighborhood. 
Um, are we looking at what challenges are, are that we're being faced with as we recruit police officers? Happy to answer that, answer that, council member. So I would say I think there's some short-term stuff that we're doing and then long-term stuff. In the short-term, we have really over the last several months shifted some of our focus in how we're recruiting officers. Um, I'd say there's a lot of new marketing and outreach ideas that the department is working through, in including finishing up an RFP around social media rebranding. Uh, the number of applicants we get through social media is, is quite a large number, and so we're refreshing that and, and looking where we spend those dollars and where people see those advertisements, as well as partnerships um, with a lot of local organizations. In the long term, um, as an execution team and cabinet and um, I don't want to say too much uh, because obviously we'll receive direction in the March message and, and come forward with a proposed budget, but we are looking um, specifically around three buckets of really priming the pipeline of uh, police officers. And so really looking at that pipeline throughout the community and, and how we onboard people, looking at uh, one-time money to help increase the marketing and outreach. Um, as our applicant pool increases, we will see 43 officers join in the third quarter this year. And then lastly, work around our laterals and really trying to incent incentivize laterals to come across. Um, that is something that we feel um, we could do a better job at and that we'll be focused on and you'll likely see as a part of the budget process in the coming year. Okay, that's, that's great, 43 new officers. That's, that's, that's great, good to hear. Uh, an update on the recruitment. I don't know if the police department uh, has anything to add or assistant, no? Okay, all right, great. Um, and finally, the focus area of cleaning up our, our neighborhoods. I wanted to share thanks with both our Beautify San Jose Division and our code enforcement team for taking any of my suggestions to, to couple the, the FAST program with dumpster days in our neighborhoods, effectively providing an outlet for our residents to hopefully be in, in compliance. Um, the, wor the work of our San, uh, Beautify San Jose team is incredibly impactful and residents report that interactions with the teams are among the most positive, especially at dumpster days and, and the many Caltrans uh, freeway cleanups. And, and my team appreciates that support, um, be it you know, our monthly litter cleanups or helping address those, those hot spots in, in East San Jose. So you know, that, this is a topic that you know, when I was at the doors uh, campaigning, everyone said that Eastside was full of blight and I really appreciate um, the city uh, as well as our mayor prioritizing that because uh, each one of our residents should live in a clean and safe neighborhood. Thank you. Great, thanks council member. Councilmember Batra. Thank you for this extensive report. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I just wanna pursue a couple of items here. Uh, the number one, in this report, is there anywhere where I can see the impact of these so-called de-escalation teams in terms of having impact on our crime and safety area? Uh, because this is again to get ready for the budget. People are approaching us that we support more of the trust teams. Is, is there anything in there, Lee, which tells us the impact of those teams? So there's nothing in this report. Um, I will say at the end of February, staff will be coming forward with council direction around analyzing our um, 911 events or just all events. And I do think that will show a pretty compelling picture of just the volume of calls um, where an alternative response could possibly be used and the importance of whether it's trust, MCAT, 
or all of those teams have on partnering with our officers um, in those incidences. So I, I think you'll get a picture of that at the end of February versus this report. Okay, thank you very much. Looking forward to that. Okay. The other one that we have, <laughs> Omar, this uh, ending homelessness 2025 report, is there any projections based on our current approaches where we may have the unsheltered or homeless numbers in the future years in San Jose. We know what it is today, or at least believe that we know uh, that roughly around 4,000, and if, if anything, it's probably less. Uh, we are expecting more than that. So is there any of the projections available for the future? Thank you for the question, Councilmember Batra. I think you're you're asking about the regional uh, 2025 uh, community plan to end homelessness, not our, not not the city specifically, right? Uh, that's but whatever we may have about San Jose would be helpful, even better, because we do talk about a lot of our programs are based on what we have in the city of San Jose, 4,000 unsheltered. That's why we're building EIH program. Do we have any idea where we see San Jose to be two years down the road, three years down the road? So uh, the the regional community plan that you're asking about doesn't, it, it has goals that are set for that sort of five-year window. Um, and it, as part of our implementation plan, we set sort of annualized goals, but you're asking about sort of trend projection, projections. And honestly, I think the answer right now is that we, we don't actually have those trend, trend projections projections that you're asking for. Okay. <clears throat> Would it be even possible to attempt that? So I think we, so here's the thing, we need what you're asking for. Like, make no mistake about it. We, we need to improve data on a number of axes to be able to do it. And fortunately, we're having a sort of monthly conversation with the, the County Office of Supportive Housing to get there. Um, we, we need a couple of tweaks to have a better understanding of how many people are living outside and where they are. And, and frankly, and this is harder, but to go back a little bit and get a retrospective so we can actually have some trend lines. We're, the, the plain truth is we're just not, not there yet. It would be helpful, though. Okay. Okay. All right. So I, I think we agree that the need for it, and you got some effort going in trying to get that there because that would help us take care of the, the policies which we need to develop. Now, the question... In this report, I think I may have missed it. You just mentioned, we talk about how many homeless there are, how many we removed and all that. Is there anywhere an indicator of the satisfaction of the neighborhoods in which these our interim actions are in place? Councilmember Batra, I, not directly in the um, quarterly survey that goes out to the community. We ask questions, uh, uh, perception questions, but we don't specifically kind of ask a satisfaction index. So I think we'd have to think about that some more and determine if, if and how it's appropriate to, uh, to ask that question in any future survey. So I would suggest that we should try to get something, not necessarily satisfaction, acceptability, or something, because a lot of our success in being able to do what we are trying to do is placing the homeless in proper interim housing, but the community around it 
accepting it so that every time we want to build a site, we're not dealing with the protest, we're dealing with a welcome sign that they can actually be coming and asking, hey, please build one in my neighborhood. So I don't know what exactly that measure should be or how should it be collected. I would strongly recommend that we try to find a way to get that piece of information uh, for us to be able to make success. Yeah. So, uh, Council Member, thank, thank you for the clarification. Mm -hmm. So with that clarification, we do ask the neighborhoods if they think homelessness has improved or gotten worse. So we do have that data, and uh, we can consider how we, how we um, bring that forward in, in any future reports. Okay. So I think we, we need to publicize how we are collecting that data and what it is showing, because every time we try to build something new, we really need to be able to use that data to prove that, hey, when we do this thing, it actually improves our neighborhoods. And the neighborhood, hopefully, they will understand it and support it in future. I think I will leave it with those comments on the, on the questions. And m my concern continues to stay, especially in, you know, most of you know, the South San Jose portion, trying to build new homeless shelters, and the community isn't buying into it. And I need to find a way that you can help us get there. And at the moment, we don't have it. That's, that's nothing to do with the measure itself or the target itself, but that's the issue which we need to be addressing. And so thanks for these reports, and thank you very much for presenting it. Okay, great. Thanks, Council Member. Um, let me offer a few comments, and then I'll turn to my remaining colleagues. So first is, uh, well, thank you, and I, I think the, seeing the updates, as I mentioned, is helpful. While some of these don't move very frequently, a couple of them were, were quite exciting. The, seeing the, the very significant increase in downtown visitation year to, as compared year to year, as I understand what that chart is showing, is worth further study and analysis of, of was the, uh, assume it wasn't all, all the ice rink, but I do think bringing back the ice rink was, was quite a win. Uh, so th there are some interesting insights to derive here. Um, I do think there's some areas where we may still be confusing outcomes and performance measures, specifically the crime rates. As Lee mentioned, you know, we have very limited, there are a lot of things that go into what drives crime rates, and, and it's still a very robust area for research and debate, and, and we only have so much control there. Those to me really feel like they belong on the front, uh, the, sorry, the top line as outcomes. We certainly care about property crime and violent crime rates as outcomes in the community. I would argue that performance measures would be more like hitting our hiring goals, retaining our officers, improving our response times through more staffing, but maybe use of technology or other techniques, things that are a little more within our control. Nothing's ever 100% within our control, but I would hope that our performance measures would really reflect areas where we're actually doing things to move the number directly, whereas a crime rate is such a lagging and, and kind of down the road indicator uh, or outcome. 
um, downtown walking shifts filled. So I may comment on some of that in my March budget message and we'll see if the council supports, but I, I just feel like there are still a few places here where we are highlighting outcomes that are great to highlight, but probably don't belong in the performance yeah. row. It, uh, it, did you want to comment on that? I, I would just say, I think as a administration and as a team, I think obviously the, the, the whole process of this last year was to, you know, and we're going to talk about it in the priority setting session, was really to try and focus on the most important things. So I think yeah. as, as a team, you guys and us, we, we have accomplished that. We were focused on four of the harder issues in the city. Um, you know, how we get there, I think we're really open. I know, as I've mentioned, at least for my own execution team and cabinet, we're using a variety of different metrics. Um, so I think we've all been trying to uh, be true to what the trans transition committees recommended um, because a number of you were on those and shared those. Um, but certainly we see a lot of room for improvement and, it, you know, specifically around things that we have more control over the point to that outcome. So as an administration, I think we're very open to that um, and can definitely partner with all of you on that. Okay, great. That sounds good to me. Look forward to continuing that conversation as we get through the budget process here. Um, on, a, on a couple of the charts, uh, and I'll take housing units added in the city, I find the percentage change a little um, obscuring because we don't know what the count is. And so I, I do think it might be helpful to understand the raw count, and it might be helpful to look at a longer time series. I'm not sure if Councilor Davis was making this point about quarterly data. I think you were talking about comparing quarter to quarter versus the year prior quarter, I believe, was your point, but is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah okay. So that point I also agree with, but I think that on some of these, understanding, having more data points and being able to look at a chart that's showing the data over a one, two year period with whatever the data points are that are appropriate, you might have monthly data for some of these, it might actually give us a better sense of, what's actu of what the trends are. Um, I don't think we should feel like there's some um, straitjacket here where we have to report them all as quarterly compared to that quarter, to the quarter before, or the I, I would compare it to the quarter of the year before, to Councilmember Davis's point, but I think in some of these we would be well served to just have more data points, just as we collect it. Downtown um, foot traffic, I, you know, I believe at least in the Downtown Vibrancy Committee that Councilmember Torres and I co-chair, we're looking at monthly data points which are reported, and so having more points on the graph might help us better understand how much noise there is versus having you know just two data points to look at in some of these charts. Overall, though, I think we're 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 achieving the goal of focus to Lee's point, moving in the right direction with this. Um, now, to Councilor Davis's memo, um, I'm I, I'll support moving to twice a year reporting. I'm more interested in the managing execution or policy implementation than using these. I don't think these alone are gonna necessarily inform policy as much, so I was more interested in signing up for 90-day milestones and deliverables around these key areas and then being able to see 90 days later if we hit those milestones or if they're slipping or why or why not. Some things lend themselves to that, others don't. I recognize that. Some are much slower time frames. So I think twice a year we should move to and see how it goes. I'm fine with that. On the community plan though, I do wanna just, I wanna clarify the, it seemed to me very clear from the transition committees and the budget process last year that both the council and the broader community felt very strongly 
about these North Star metrics of reducing unsheltered homelessness and reducing the impacts. And even as it is, I don't find that to actually be reflected as the outcome that we currently have in the chart. We have this ratio of inflow to outflow, which is a useful metric, a useful thing to track and understand, but has so many variables. And I just, I would be worried if we move to the community planned goal, which as I read it is a 30% reduction in those becoming homeless, that that may not be the right North Star outcome to organize our work around, even though I agree with all the strategies in there and I think we want to align ourselves with those strategies and more of them should be reported as the performance metrics we're measuring our work on those strategies. Uh, but I worry, I would worry if we just picked up that 30% reduction in the inflow, because that, that feels to me like an incomplete uh, picture. So I just want to clarify where you were going with that one. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the uh, chance to comment. Um, so there are three pillars in the community plan to end homelessness, and we don't have all, all of those covered with our, with our with performance here. So yeah. I wanted to give staff a chance to, to discuss this, but I know that what we're tracking doesn't really align with that. So it's not, not necessarily just the, out, the, the goal of the community plan to end homelessness, but also all the pillars so that, so that we can oversee how well they're implementing the plan on all three pillars. So one is reducing impacts, right? One is, is prevention, if, and the third one, remind me what it is, I don't, I don't remember. Housing. So, so there, the housing, right, so that's permanent housing. So there yeah, are three pillars for that, and I think that it's important for us to, to have measures and, and to, to track all three of those in in assert in like along the way towards the out the actual outcome right yeah yeah i think that's reasonable and i think we've we've approved the plan i think we are attempting from where it's appropriate for us as a city and we have resources to implement many if not all of the strategies there and we should track and hold ourselves accountable to that implementation what i what i would worry about would be a shift that sort of has us measuring so many things that we aren't crystal clear on what I believe is the community's top priority and expectation for our city, which is that we are making steady, measurable gains in the reduction of the number of people outside. Now, there may have a lot of debates over which strategies, are, is it more prevention that's gonna get us there, more shelter, more permanent, how we can have that, we'll continue to have that debate, but I just wanna make sure that that North Star of where we're going as the outcome doesn't get lost as we try to add what are many different strategies and metrics in that community plan. So it sounds like staff is, with the current direction, what, uh, and there may be further direction through the budget message, but with the, if we adopt this memo today, what happens next? Well, I think from the standpoint of the reducing unsheltered homelessness focus area, I think it, it seems pretty clear that there's enough uh, information to continue to push to, to get us towards reductions in unsheltered homelessness while as the council adopted uh, in the implementation plan, measures that are specific to the three pieces that uh, uh, Councilmember Davis just said. So I, I think that the, the ability to do, do both of these things is in line with what we're pushing for right now. It doesn't decrease focus and also allows us to get both sides of that uh, coin to get the, that number down. 
Yeah, thank you, Omar. Um, I think in a macro level, if you read Councilmember Davis's language, it's, it, were, it gives us the direction to explore various things and come back. So, so what would we do? We'd, we'd, we'd explore uh, the direction um, that any direction we've been given here, as well as the memo, as well as what may be coming, as you just mentioned, in the March budget message. And we'd explore and come back with uh, options to address those things. Um, I, I think, for example, something we've been talking about is, as Omar indicated, we, we finally feel confident we've wrangled HMIS in a way that what we report is, is, is as accurate as it can be. So in addition to the, the um, inflow outflow, which gives us a certain level of insight, there can also be the, the total homelessness count month to month, which gives us insight, and we're finally confident in having that data. There's other things we would explore. So we would continue, what we would do is we'd continue forward with any briefings. We continue forward with uh, continuing to roll out the dashboards on the website, which allow more data to be published and disaggregated. Um, and we would come back on a, we come back in the fall in September uh, with, with the opportunity to actually do a little bit more analysis and thoughtful thinking. I appreciate the recommendation to go to uh, uh, twice a year because the, we have such a compressed time frame to wrangle the data, analyze the data, produce a council report, get a council presentation ready, uh, come to you and be coherent, that we have almost zero time to do analysis, to be perfectly honest. So, so this gives us the time to do some thoughtful analysis and come back with some more thoughtful ways to show progress on outcomes and performance as well as policy um, and that's what we come back in September. In the interim our goal is to release the first disaggregated dashboard for um, cleaning up our neighborhoods in, um, in March and then complete the disaggregated dashboards uh, by the end of summer and that will also give a lot more data for people to look at and, and uh, analyze. Okay. And can I add something there? Yeah. Um, I also wanted just to clarify, going if we go to the semi-annual reporting, that will not stop us as the administration from coming to council on any given Tuesday or to a committee. If we need to have the council to do any policy considerations that will keep us nimble and keep us moving forward on the focus area. Okay. And then um, what progress are we making toward getting these dashboards up live and um, is to the extent feasible like the county dashboards interactive for the public? So the, the, the first page, the scorecard with the outcome and performance data is live on the council priority website now. Our next step, uh, uh, which I, I, I apparently didn't make all that clear. So on the website, what we're planning on doing in, in, in March is publishing our first disaggregated set of data so a lot of the questions, there's a lot more data that we have available than you see in the actual scorecard. So we want to publish that so it's available uh, as open data in a usable form on our website. And we've published the four scorecards, but then we want to be able to allow people to disaggregate that and see by race, by location, by age, by income. Um, the first rollout of that for beautifying our city cleaning up our city, excuse me, cleaning up neighborhoods, excuse me, would be in, uh, in March, and then we complete that rollout by the, by the end of summer. Okay. All right, thank you. Let me turn to Councilor Foley. 
Thank you, and thank you for the presentations on, from all of you on all of these focus areas. Uh, a few things. First, I, I want to echo the concerns about the quarter, qu quarter and quarter and it not being actually cumulative. If I'm looking at um, the traffic fatalities as an example, which is something I track quite a bit as it relates to Vision Zero, we had 17 in the first quarter, 26 in the second quarter, but that's 43. We should really be reporting the total number and not individual quarters and then comparing it year over year or cumulative, cumulative year over year. I think just think those numbers are much more effective in how we're analyzing the data and would love to see that going forward. Anytime you're looking at a budget, you're looking at it cumulative. So I look at this the same way, that we're looking at statistics that should be quarter plus quarter, and this is where we are now, not, not where I have to do the math and figure it out myself. We need to make it easy for someone like me um, and our residents who are watching this. Question for you, Lee, regarding the um, community safety numbers. We under the traffic enforcement, there's 30 FTEs, and maybe this is for Paul Joseph, I don't know. Is that uh, the traffic enforcement unit? And if so, I don't think you really have 30 people in, is that budgeted? Yes, council member, that is what is budgeted for that unit, and yes, you're also correct, it's not fully staffed at this time. It's about okay. two thirds staff. Okay, so we have how many? Traffic enforcement. I believe it's about, I was. I thought it was I don't know half the of that, but I'm not going to question you. About 18. 18. Okay. I believe, but don't hold me to that. Okay. Um, so that is the budget. Uh, I was excited actually to see that we might have 30 officers there, but we only have 18 or so. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Um, other questions. I think I'm done with you for the moment. I have questions regarding. Vision Zero, so maybe DOT is up there. But we, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for funding last year in our budget the grant rider for Vision Zero and traffic calming efforts. And we were able to get a federal grant of $12.9 million based on that individual who's in that seat. So that's fabulous. You already heard the report today that. Those, uh, those intersections will be, that'll be worked on are the four with the most fatalities in the city. So that's wonderful. The question I have for you, John, is about the, there were 14 traffic calming projects completed, and then there's a projection of next quarter, or this quarter, I guess the quarter we're in, of 14 projects. Those are different projects. Is that they correct? Yeah. Do you have the funding for those projects? There, some of it's coming out of the, the budgets that have already been approved for the Vision Zero, and then some are grant funded, so. Okay, so in total, you do have the money <clears throat> ready to go for those projects. Yeah, that's where I understand. Okay, great, that, that is really good to know because we still need to make our streets very safe, and that's one of the ways we're gonna do it. And one of the things that really works is our quick build projects, 
where we can at, react quickly in a less expensive way. So is there a lot of grant money available for quick build projects? The grants usually don't call out quick build, but we're able to uh, achieve some success with the grants by by describing them that we're going to get them done quickly through a quick build. Okay. There's one that the MTC grant that we got that was specifically for a quick build that that actually was probably the only one that uses that term that I'm aware of, but Okay. But yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, I'm not I guess I'll make a plug for this when we get into the priority setting session, but I want to make sure that we keep vision zero and funding infrastructure at top of mind as we go forward. Thanks, John. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a question. Uh, Councilmember Ortiz raised the question, Omar, about aggregated data, and, dis and you said you have the data that is disaggregated. That would really be helpful to know because people have um, residents, neighbors, our constituents, have a misconception about who are the unhoused. So if we could have some statistics there, members of the LGBT community, their uh, veterans, their um, whatever disaggregated you, data you have that you could share with us as a council office, I think would be really helpful for us as we go out into the community and uh, talk to people about who their neighbors are. Sure, Councilmember. Thank you for that. And I will just say our, our uh, regional partners actually produced some pretty good information about that disaggregation. So we'll be continuing to work with the continuum of care and 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 get you the types of information um, that we have around veterans and, and this kind of thing, so that you have it. Great. Thank you. I understand you're not you're getting the data for some from someone else, but I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, moving on to cleaning up our neighborhoods and the focus of vacant buildings last or October, uh, the second quarter of downtown. I'd just like to throw it out there that there are vacant blighted commercial buildings all over the city. So Angel, when will we start seeing that be a focus that our vacant blighted buildings will be worked on or code enforcement will be involved there. Yeah, council member, um, yeah, I, I think you raised a real uh, tough issue that we're trying to solve. Uh, I, I will say this, that the FAST pilot that we've launched in November is showing some great promise in terms of not only responding quicker to these, um, to these issues, but also um, you know, bringing them to closure. The other thing that we're doing, and you'll hear a little bit about this in the next presentation, okay. around some re-engineering, around code enforcement, uh, case log uh, management, and so forth. And so, um, you know, maybe I'll just wait till that section. But th this is definitely something that we're tracking, and we're really uh, looking at re-engineering some things to kind of get to those citywide sooner. Thank you for that. And and these, the presentation you just made, and then the prior the study session right afterwards it's a little confusing to me as to what i should be asking when so i will certainly wait for your answer there and during in the fast program are we going to commercial properties it, it, it it's uh, it, it's it's business and residence so okay. we, yeah when you take a look at uh, the, the first two uh, for example just the the initial launching of areas one and two 
6,300 parcels were reviewed. There were 133 citations issued, and 60% of those citations were resolved shortly after that first citation. That's great. So that, talk about quick response. So uh, again, signs of some promise and uh, new approaches there. Really, really happy to hear that. Thank you. And finally, I have a question. Rosalind, there she is, about the pop-up spaces. Where, tell me about, can you tell me a little bit about the pop-up spaces? Where are they? I assume downtown someplace. Are these vacant properties that we own that, or we've got, we've arranged something with the landlord? Oh, Nancy's in the room, okay. Yes, Nancy Klein that's, I think that's down exciting. To give you specifics, it is very exciting. These are currently vacant storefronts that will be leased up. Thank you, Nancy Klein, Economic Development. I'm very happy to mention Chris Arkley, who's working on the project from our office. These first three will be on the Paseo, close to university. So there'll be those that work, and also a plug for everybody to go to Campus Burgers, which is going to have really low cost, really tasty burgers. So a lot's happening. Then we'll get home eat open. So good things. Okay. Wonderful. I look forward to hearing more about our pop-ups. With that, I'm finished as my time is running out. Thank you, Mayor. Great. Thanks, Councilmember. Councilmember Torres? Nancy, Whispers is really good, too. Don't forget. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> but Campus Burgers, yes, when it comes in, let's go have a, a burger. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for, the, for the presentation. Uh, I know that as the uh, downtown council member, I, um, I, I love to hear our progress, but then uh, as usual, I'm also concerned about uh, the concerns that we have. Uh, and so I actually have two questions, not sure who, who can uh, answer them, but I, the first one is a question regarding the community service uh, officers. So I'm not sure if, that, uh, if, if that's, uh, that's our assistant chief. And before, before I, I ask the chief the question, I, I want to, you know, I want to let folks know that, that um, we are seeing amazing progress in, in, in downtown. Uh, we have a, a coordinated effort with, with not only our city, right, our city employees and city departments, but Groundworks, uh, San Jose Downtown Association Social Impact Team, right, that's, that's uh, you know, very important, the mayor and myself. Uh, have a, a, a ad hoc committee that, with regarding safety and marketing, and so I know that you know downtown is in the upswing and is is open for business, and it's open for um as I said before, it's open it's open for our unsheltered individuals all the way to the you know our our business owners and our clients right our, and their clients. So uh, I know that last year we budgeted for CSOs. To be biking around or or walking around in in, in our downtown core, uh, I believe we were supposed to start in Feb, and now we're in Feb, and it, I don't I don't see them. So what's what's happening there, Chief? So uh, Paul Joseph, Assistant Chief. So we do have CSOs working downtown <clears throat> in the core, but they're doing it on an overtime basis. They're not. We don't uh, have enough to deploy them in the manner in which it was budgeted just yet. Uh, we've managed to fill uh, the CSOs about two of the five days per week. Uh, it's not something we can mandate them to do, but they they volunteer to do it. So we have some coverage, not as much as we would ultimately like. Okay, so we do we actually do have our CSOs out there. I yes, thought they we were do. supposed to be on bikes. 
that, that became a little bit complicated. They're on foot. Uh, there's a lot of issues with the bikes, and, and we were working uh, through those. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chief. I'm, I'm glad that they're out there. And I, I also I'm, I asked this question because I know that, that it, it is important that we not only uh, that we don't use our police officers for for responses in downtown, right? And so there's there's many many concerns in downtown San Jose, and I'm so glad that we're we we have our CSOs who who are responding to these concerns, and not just our our police officers, right? And then the other question is, the other question is, I know again, you know, our the the unsheltered community in our downtown are our neighbors, uh, and so and. And I'm so glad that you know Councilmember Ortiz and Councilmember Foley asked the question of who these folks are. I know uh, some of us sit on an, an NSC and you know tell us who these who these who these folks are. My question is is and I know that we've been discussing this a little bit more offline, but I think it's important for our community to know that we are going to be opening up a a you know first of its kind collaboration center. Right, with multiple services offered to our unhoused. It's not a drop-in center yet, though I hope it does become one, um, but a service center or a resource center for, for our unhoused. And I just wanna know, you know where, where are we at in that? I know we were supposed to, you know, it's a vacant store, storefront as you could, as we just heard, right? We're utilizing all these vacant storefronts that we have in the city of San Jose. Where are we at in, uh, in, in opening up this, uh, you know, this collaboration with a whole slew of partners. Great, thank you so much, Council. And if you can name those partners, Rosalind, that'd be great. Certainly, thank you so much for the question, Councilmember Torres. So we're very excited. It's taking us a little bit longer than we anticipated to get the site ready for our partners, um, but we will be ready to open, um, we're hoping by the end of this month. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, this space will be um, an opportunity for uh, the housing department's outreach staff to come together with our county partners, um, as well as our partners with the downtown association. So their social impact team members uh, will be housed um, in that location as well. So this will be a space for all of our partners to, to gather um, regularly to talk about uh, some of the case management issues as it relates to our unsheltered residents in downtown. Great, thank you so much. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's important that uh, we we make sure that this happens, right? And that in the next in the next report that we get, um, that you know, it, that that number where f folks feel that downtown is unsafe because of our you know on our homeless and other concerns, right? That that you know comes down a little bit because I know it came down a little bit, but not too much. Um, but again, you know, progress is progress, right? And so um, I think that's important. So. Um, and then with that, that was that's all I had for today. Okay, great. Thanks, Council Member. Once again, really appreciate the update. We've got a motion on the floor. Let's vote. I think I hit it too soon. Oh no, they're absent. So I have um, the motion passes unanimously with Kamei and Cohen absent. Okay. So. Cohen just voted yes, so now it's unanimous with May absent. All right, excellent. I believe we're on to open forum. So we're gonna go to open forum.
and then um, we will take a short break to then switch over to the study session. So open forum is an opportunity for members of the public to speak on any city business that was not on today's agenda. Tony, do you have any cards? Yes, I have um, 10 cards. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call your name. You can um, come up in any order you want to come up, so don't worry about that. Um, this person is Callan, Callender, um, Wanda Hendricks, Queen Anne, I can't read the last name, sorry. And um, I don't have a name on this one, but it says President of Iola Williams Seniors Advisory Group. Joan Holtz, just come to the menu, the menu, the microphone. <laughs> Sorry. I'm apparently hungry. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak to you this afternoon, Honorable Mayor and Honorable Council Members. Uh, we are here. It's actually imperative that we uh, come before you this afternoon. The majority of us have been involved with the um, uh, Seven Trees Community Center and was actually there the day they cut the ribbon and opened the place. We were at the uh, George Shuakawa Center over on McLaughlin before we were moved to uh, Seven Trees. Uh, last Wednesday, Wednesday a week ago, we got a very concerning email from one of the members who was in the sewing class telling us that during, during the sewing class, someone from the center brought a box of things, brought things and items during Black History Month. And it was, of course, very upset, upsetting to us. And I'm sure each and every one of you know that February is Black History Month. Uh, we understood that uh, one member was so offended that she did not even bother to look in the box after she saw this beautiful uh, African material that was actually purchased by our group. I mean, we were members of the council, and uh, but we received reports from uh, the San Jose Parks and Recs and individuals, uh, some of the management at Seven Trees uh, Community Center, saying that nothing was Next speaker. I'm sorry, I'm sorry you're time. Yeah, Ma'am, I'm hoping we can connect. Stephen, if you could at least, um, if you're willing, maybe we can get your contact information and try to follow up on what's happened. I don't know if others are going to speak on the same yeah. topic. I think we'd probably want to learn more. I'll talk from here. Our next speaker is on the same topic. Sure. Let's, okay. Well, let's hear from more speakers and then we'll also follow up offline. Hello? Is it on? Hello, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Queen Anne Cannon, and I consider myself one of the um, ground people from the community. I'm a community organizer, worker, support person, 
and I had like at stakeness in this conversation. Um, Ayla Williams is not only one of our legends, she's part of our history. We've had such a hard time gathering all our history and having it recognized in the community and the world. And the people from the 60s, which I am, um, have worked very hard in building and maintaining black history, not only for our youth, but for ourselves and for our future generations. So it's a part of our legacy, the legacy we want to bring forward to our, to our children. And so the idea that anything from one of our legends has been being displaced is really disrespectful. And I don't want to go into all the words that I have, but if you look up it in the Google, they have a really great description of what disrespectful behavior is and what it means. So I don't want to say all those words, but you can look it up. It's very, when someone's being disrespectful, it's not only being rude, you can't even say I'm sorry. It goes deeper than that. So I want to say that this makes me feel disrespected and her legend and her memories and our future uh, disrespected with the idea that any part of her legacy is being removed or tampered with. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Hello, my name is Joan Holt, and I'm a member of Seven Trees Community Center. And it was brought to my attention while we were in our sewing class. I'm not the one that started it, but in our sewing class, a box was brought to us with African fabrics and wall hangings and said that we could take the fabric and use it because they thought, I guess, it was just fabric for us to use for sewing, but it was not. I found out because I didn't know. So um, I took a... Um, a wall hanging home to hang on my wall. So I got a call from uh, the instructor. We need to bring, you need to bring it back because they weren't theirs. They weren't supposed to be given out. It belonged to the community center. So I brought it back and I was just called in to witness what I saw and what I did and what happened. So that's why I'm here today. Thank you. Margaret, Amy, And for those who just spoke on the community center, we're going to follow up, yeah. connect with appropriate city staff, and make sure we continue the conversation and, and get to the bottom of what's happened and resolve it. Okay, Amy, hi. Hi, good afternoon, Mayor and Council members. My name is Amy Cody, and I'm here to share my concern about the proposed Costco at Westgate West. It is an undersized site and an inappropriate location for a giant bulk item warehouse expected to generate 11,000 vehicle trips per day. This traffic would greatly impact roads and intersections around the site, adjacent neighborhoods, and the 1,500 students going and coming from Prospect High School, which is located across the street. Without protected parking, co-located businesses would also suffer. 
The current DEIR does not adequately evaluate transportation impacts, including pedestrian and cyclist safety. This despite the proximity to the high school and Saratoga Avenue, a Vision Zero prior, uh, priority safety corridor being right there. It also fails to require mitigations along Prospect Road, where a main Costco entrance is located. The city approved the massive El Paseo signature project around the corner to create a high-density, pedestrian and bicycle-friendly, transit-oriented urban village. A Costco warehouse is antithetical to this vision. This congested area needs multi-jurisdictional, multimodal transportation planning, not many thousand cars heading to and from Costco. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Again, I've called um, it, the email address includes the name calendar in it. Wanda, um, somebody who doesn't have a name. This is President of Iowa Williams Senior Advisory Group. Margaret, Chris, and then I also have Ha Troon and Sandra Asher. So if you guys want to come down, first person on the microphone can speak. And that's all of the cards. So basically, if you turned in a card, please come on down, except for the people who are here for study session. Go ahead. My name is Margaret. I am from Iola Williams. I was there to repair this that I had gotten in Egypt, and I wanted to repair it for black history. That's why I was in the class. I did see them bring in the box. I did see them distribute the pieces. I didn't take anything because I know how long we have worked to get those pieces for the walls. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Thank you, Mr. Mayor and council members. Uh, I'm the president of the Iola Williams Senior Board. And I did my research as well. I went to the uh, community center and I met with the supervisor and we discussed the matter. Uh, he indicated that the results occurred because it was a random selection of the bins that contained all of the materials that's used in the sewing class. And in so doing, uh, the person who carried the bins in just accidentally picked up a bin that included the black history items. Now, there's a controversy around that. Some members questioned that because it had to be reclaimed. Uh, who gave the orders? Uh, who uh, went to, who took the bins in and did they check the bins before? I mean, there are many questions. And so what I'm asking the council to do is to appoint a person and that person will meet with the community and they will go over a process of, of how they would run an audit to know exactly what is there and how things are taken out so that we'd eliminate this problem. If we just assume 
it the way it is now, it won't work because people will always be doubting what someone says. If we set it initially, find out what is there, and we have an audit frequently, it may be a year, maybe six months, or whatever. Thank you. Next speaker. Dear Mayor and dear Council Member, uh, my name is Hartios and I am President of Vietnamese American uh, Community of Northern California. Uh, we commend the Mayor's Office, Council Member Don Office, the City Council of San Jose and City of San Jose staff of supporting and hosting the test celebration and the flag raising ceremony Monday. February 12, 2024, yesterday. However, we have few suggestions for the mayor's office for planning such future events. Number one, why the USA code indicate that USA flag can be displayed between sunrise and sunset. We suggest that USA flag the raising as early in the day as possible. In, re in regarding the Vietnamese wounded flag, protocol suggests it should be raised in the morning and not in the afternoon. Number two, flag raising ceremony should take redemption over commentary speeches and other activities. Therefore, the raising of the flag should be first in the order of any activity. The flag raising ceremony and at Fifth Heritage Garden have followed the principle and with event most of council members have shared with us. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, I'd also like to call down Roberta. My name is Sandra Asher, and I am speaking today as a member of the Real Coalition. The city needs to immediately restore virtual public comment for all city council, committee, and commission meetings. I agree that the comments of a few bad actors are vile and have no place in a community meeting. But here's the thing. The impact of cutting off community participation means that people who most need an equitable city budget will be sidelined throughout this process. The budget season is the most critical time of the year for civic engagement. The ban on remote comments denies a large segment of our community the opportunity to participate in our democratic process. Consider the disabled residents who rely on technology to speak, have social anxiety, or who otherwise have to arrange rides with paratransit just to come down and see, give their comment in person. Working people without the ability to arrange to take time off of work to arrange their schedules around hour-long council meetings. I've been here since 1.30 waiting to give this comment. I have 
extreme privilege to be able to do so. Parents with small children who can't take time off to attend these meetings. Even a short hiatus from virtual public comment can have lasting effects on public policy. The city should rise to the challenge of finding solutions to abusive language comments while simultaneously continuing to facilitate public comment by providing a virtual option. I ask that you immediately restore virtual public comment to ensure that you and the city once again can benefit from the voices silenced by your recent decision. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. I am also speaking on behalf of Christine Fitzgerald. Sorry. She asked me to speak as she's not able to make this meeting in person. You might wonder why this is. Quite simply, her access needs are not being met. My care, and this is Christine's words I'm reading. My caregiver quit for a better paying placement and I have yet to find someone to work the hours and times that I need help in getting ready for my day. The process of preparation to join any meeting in person is multi-layered. It's simply not having to get up and get cleaned and dressed and out the door. This would have been possible back in the day when I could dress and bathe and drive myself. Now these things have to be done with the help of others. I have to have attendance help. I have to schedule access rides to and from a venue, making sure that lines up with my attendance time. Compare the above to this. Okay, I take care of my needs as best up. I can. Ma'am, your time yes. is up. Thank you. Next speaker. Hello, Mayor and City Council. My name is Roberta Witte. I live in the English Estates neighborhood, and I'm here to talk to you about the Costco that's being proposed in Westgate West Shopping Center. This proposed Costco is too big for Westgate West Shopping Center and will generate too much traffic and already heavily impacted and dangerous intersection. A warehouse is not appropriate for this property. This is not what an urban village that was suggested for our West Valley citizens should look like. This will forever change West San Jose in a negative way and put the seniors in the three facilities in our neighborhood, in my neighborhood, and the many hundreds of Prospect High School students at high risk for tragic accidents. The DEIR fails to analyze or mitigate significant impacts on pedestrians and bicyclists. In a previous meeting of the residents, we were told there was no study for the intersection of Lyle Drive and Prospect Road, which is the front entrance of the high school and the primary entrance to my neighborhood, English Estates, where the ambulances are here five to six times per day. Not required for this proposal, yet sitting only a few hundred feet from the proposed Costco entrance? Really? San Jose's bike plan calls for reducing bicycle collisions. The Vision Zero plan is intended to make it a safe community. None of these things are listed and being discussed. This DEIR is inadequate because it fails to analyze and mitigate project impacts on pedestrians in the immediate area of the proposed Costco. San Jose City can do better to protect us. Thank you. Thank you, next speaker. Okay, um, back to council. Okay, great. And um, at least as long as the current Zoom policy is in place, 
I do want to also just note that we can have folks write in as, as an alternative for those who can't who can't make it. I know the city attorney wanted me to just flag that for the record for folks, um, though totally get the the point. Um, okay, we are now a, our open session is adjourned. We are taking a roughly 10 to 15 minute break while we do the the AV tran the, the transition. Yes. Closer to 15. Closer to 15, and then we will come back to do the priority setting session.